0: DOCM OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the program. It's Thursday, December the 1st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone and give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211 or elsewhere. It's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So a bit of a frosty morning out there today. We're going to hit a high of 6, apparently, in the metro region. Rainy, windy. Today is also the... Uh, First day for the winter parking ban in many communities including St John's and Mount Pearl. So check your town or city's website to make sure you know what's going on with the winter parking ban so you don't do what I did and be mindless about it and get dinged with a $75 ticket unnecessarily because there was no snow, no plow. Okay, today is also day one of your advent calendar if you're so inclined. Alright, stick with the ice, the frost here for a second, ease into the program. Today in history, in 1924, was the first ever NHL game played in the United States. The Boston Bruins beat the Montreal Maroons 2-1. to one. Also, this one is really great. In 1930, the NHL did away with one of their penalties. It was a 20-minute penalty for what they called slashing about the head. 20 minutes for slashing about the head. How about that? And this one is really cool. It was today, 1940, that four sets of brothers played in one NHL game. When the Chicago Blackhawks beat the New York Rangers 4-1. So there were two sets of brothers on each team. Lynn and Moss Patrick and Neil and Mac Culver were playing for the Rangers. Max and Doug Bentley and Bibb and uh, Bib, Bob and Bill Cars were playing for the Blackhawks. Four sets of brothers in the one game. Now let's check in with Canada men's softball team. Playing at the World Championships in Auckland, New Zealand. So yesterday Sean Clary pitched for us again. Went five innings. Shane Boland was two for two with a home run. And the the Canadians beat the Americans four to three. They're now six and, oh, Argentina up next. I don't know how many Argentinians will be following the softball when they've got their soccer club through to the round of 16 at the World Cup. Stick with the ice for a second. So warnings coming from the folks at the White Wolf Snowmobile Club in Lab City. A fellow named uh, Eldon Wheaton is the president. Warning folks in the area, don't go out on the ice yet. It's just not safe. And I suppose we always have to have these... Frequent warnings because the boys are looking out, or whoever, the men and the women are looking out at their quads and their snowmobiles, thinking, All right, let's go, winter time it is. But apparently, it's simply not safe enough. So, there's a warning coming from Eldon Wheaton at the White Wolf Snowmobile Club. Okay. So, which shortage will we talk about today for a minute? And this is not just about this particular profession, but it's respiratory therapists. Apparently, six have quit their jobs since, septem- since September. There's going to be more vacancies soon, very likely, says Gordon Piercy, who's the president of the Association of Allied Health Professionals. I don't know a whole lot about what respiratory therapists do. I know they're responsible for intubation and, you know, intubating, putting uh, patients on a ventilator, for instance, and they're carrying a massive caseload. So apparently two therapists caring for up to 18 patients at a time, when in fact it's much around half of that what would be an appropriate caseload for the two therapists. So, they've got a couple more that are going on leave soon, and there's going to be some additional vacancies. Eastern Health funds some 56 full time permanent respiratory therapists. All six resignations were in the metro region. Here's where the story broadens out to the entirety of the healthcare worker profession. So, we know it's a competitive world out there. Provinces are competing with each other for healthcare professionals, which is really a sad state of affairs when you think about it in broad terms. So, Nova Scotia a couple of things. Nova Scotia's got this real much more youthful vibe, especially in Halifax. You know, they got 10 universities and it's a different type of feel in the province of Nova Scotia where I've been many, many times. So they came here aggressively recruiting respiratory therapists. So apparently the province this province, we usually wait until January to have this recruitment drive. Well, too late. Nova Scotia's been here, and they've got a real whopping big offer in front of these respiratory therapists. In this province, they're the lowest paid in the country. So, apparently, the uh, Nova Scotia representatives, they were here offering jobs, a $10,000 signing bonus, relocation assistance, and in addition to that, 20% higher pay to move to Nova Scotia to be a respiratory therapist. Now, the province says, okay, we've got to up our game, we're going to do some of these recruitment meetings early in December. But if I've been offered $10,000, 20% higher pay, assistance in relocating, that's pretty enticing. That's pretty luring. And if they've made the decision then when the province comes behind, it's going to be a very difficult setup to try to encourage them to change their mind. Because here's what we're going to be offering, apparently. A $10,000 bursary, full-time employment in exchange for a two-year service contract. Wait now. I was told many, many times by different representatives inside of government that service contracts don't work. There's something patently unfair or some such gibberish when we talk about, for instance, at Mons Med School. You know, me and you, we're subsidizing education at Memorial University. We all know it to be true. And if that's the case, and it is, and a service contract is appropriate for respiratory therapists, how is it not appropriate across the entire gamut where there is some subsidy dollars flowing to one school or another? So Nova Scotia has been here. We can talk about the comprehensive suite of enticements that the province has put forward, and there's lots of them out there. Are they working? I really don't know. But if we have someone who is a captive audience, sitting in a registered nurse's school, or respiratory therapist at the College of North Atlantic, or MUNS med school, or whatever healthcare discipline, the the likelihood of someone from this province staying in this province is obviously much more real than the ability to recruit, whether it be nurses in India or anywhere else. I would suggest that the recruitment and the hopeful retention begins the day you apply for a seat in any of these schools. We don't wait until it's your graduating year to broach the subject, maybe after the fact where Nova Scotia's been here dangling an awesome-looking contract in front of them. Constant communication. Here's what's going on. Here's the landscape. Here's the opportunities. Maybe some enticements to move to more rural, isolated parts of the province. Put that in front of them. You know, identify folks who may indeed be... I have grown up somewhere close to Burgio or in the town of Burgio. You know, some opportunities put it in front of them from day one. But not after Nova Scotia's been here. Flew back to Halifax, licking their chops, knowing that, whew, we recruited a few respiratory therapists. And anyway, we're behind the curve on that one. I just don't get it. Uh, okay. And with that, it's flu season. I may unfortunately have a case of the flu in my home. One of the boys is not feeling very well, to say the very least. And so with the respiratory therapist, and we know that, you know, people don't want to hear the numbers any longer. As much as I'm and I'm done and you're done with COVID, it's not done with us. So five new related uh, COVID deaths were reported yesterday when the province updated its hub. Our condolences to all. That's 278 total. Now there's 19 people in the hospital. Six are in critical care. You can do what you see fit with that information, but it's not done with us as much as we... Would like it to be gone and gone forever. You want to take it on or talk about it? Let's go. All right, we're going to hear more and more of these stories. And this is about seniors in the province who are maybe approaching their senior years. And it's not just about the seniors themselves, it's about their family and friends. And this is the issue surrounding the potential of separating. Couples who have been together for decades because they have different levels of need, medical, r- medical needs. So one might be appropriate for a personal care home. Another might be requiring a long-term care bed because they have certain additional needs. Now, there are some exemptions available, but they're a little bit, little bit difficult to completely understand. One is if it's been determined that separation is detrimental to a spouse, how could it not be? They're each other's best friend, very likely. They're their emotional support. They've been together forever. So we know when uh, couples are separated, they deteriorate quite rapidly in some cases. So they go on to say there's also the potential to not be separated based on wait lists. Now, the wait list numbers are really quite extraordinary. Provincially, 414 people are on a wait list for a long-term care facility as of the 22nd of September. 188 alone in Eastern Health. Only 157 people province-wide are waiting for a bed in a personal care home, of which 43 are in Eastern Health. So here's what it says. Joint placement is possible in personal care homes. However, reads the statement, there is greater capacity. So those exemptions may indeed fit the bill for some couples. And I've been trying to figure out exactly how they approach it via legislation in Nova Scotia. But we've got to figure this one out and plan for the future. You know, I've said it repeatedly. and I'm going to say it again. If we are dealing with the concerns that people have today, of course we have to. But we also have to spend the exact same amount of time dealing with and preparing for the future, whether it be aging in place, long-term care, or anything in the healthcare world, or anything in education, or anything in industry. But that story, I think, is going to be more and more prevalent, more and more troubling as days go by. So if you want to chime in, because, of course, it's not just about the seniors of today. It's about their family. Imagine sitting in your own home thinking, boy, it's soon going to be time to have a conversation with mom and dad. They need some additional help. They can't get the home care required, so maybe, just maybe, unfortunately, we've got to try to find them a bed in a care home or a long-term care facility, which is troubling enough. Then it's the potential thought to be sitting there and at the exact same time thinking, oh, my God, what happens if they have to be separated? So it's going to be a story that is for every age demographic because we would all share the very similar concerns, and if you want to take it on, we can do it. Also, when it comes to that potential time in life, and you think, well, now that I'm going to potentially be moving into one of these homes, I'm going to have to consider selling my home, and then again rears its head the issue surrounding crown lands. Now if you hear it from the realtors themselves, they say that there's a veritable tsunami of people finding out after decades, living on a plot of land, that they don't own the land itself, it's actually owned by the crown. And then it's the costly, arduous, time-consuming process to go through a lawyer and maybe the quieting of titles. When the province abolished squatters' rights back in 1976, it created a real mess. Now there's ways to get a couple of affidavits from community members to say the land has been occupied for a 20-year segment. I think it was between 56 and 76. That's not always possible either. So... People are being forced to pay a whopping big price tag for the crown land as they go to try to cash in on their little bit of equity they have in their home. You know, the one story that I read about this morning was $40,000 it cost to actually buy the piece of crown land, where they've had a home since 1984. So the government has got to figure this out because if it's happening as a tsunami rate today, then it is going to be that 10 times over in the very near future. Because we know it's happening, people are downsizing, Maybe moving to different parts of the province or moving out of the province, unfortunately. So, the issue surrounding Crown lands, it's always been a time consuming, frustrating effort to deal with Crown lands. I've heard the stories oh, a thousand times here on the show. There was one example given that this one person, with the lawyer's assistance, has been waiting on an issue with Crown lands for three and a half years. So, the province has to figure this one out. And I don't know why it's become so arduous. Let me add to that if they're being such sticklers and so diligent and so careful and protective of Crown land that uh, individuals, families have been living on, you can only hope they play the same hardball with industry that comes to town wanting to buy or lease Crown land for whatever it be. Green hydrogen projects, windmills, whatever we're talking about, if we're going to be driving a hard bargain with individuals, we better drive our harder bargain with industry. We have to. We must. now. What that looks like, we're not even entirely sure. There hasn't been much in the way of details about how they're approaching the use of crown land and whether it be establishment of a royalty on water use or whatever the case may be. But if you're going to drive families cracked, you better be very, very difficult and staunch and firm when dealing with industry because the crown land, if we sell it and their business goes sideways, then what? Let's talk about that. All right, the town of Paradise, and this won't be unique to Paradise, I don't think. We all feel the pressures, and whether it be cost of living, inflation, supply chains, and whatnot, the town of Paradise, and I'm sure they didn't want to, but they did, inside their $41 million budget, raise property taxes. The new mill rate in Paradise, 7.4. That's an increase of .2. The cost of residential water and sewer will rise to $625 from 600. Now, of course, with all the normal municipal responsibilities inside the $41 million budget. It's coming to a community very near you. you got to think. And I'm not in the mood, nor is it my style, to make people afraid of the unknown because we don't know at this time until your community brings down their budget. But Paradise won't be unlike any other community. With the additional cost that you're feeling as a family or an individual, the municipalities are feeling the same thing. So property taxes where you live, don't be shocked if they go up. How are we doing out there, Dave? Uh, very quickly. I still would like to talk about the issue surrounding the 11,000 students inside of 33 schools that may indeed be up for sale, even though it's been protected by the Schools Act, that if it's used for educational purposes, it's hands-off. Now it's going to go to the courts to see what the options are. Either we stick with the Schools Act, as it is today, or they're up for sale, or the province will pay to keep them inside the school system. That story is a big one. And, of course, while we all wait with bated breath just to see what it's going to cost me to feed my family tonight, and or to fill up my rig with gasoline or diesel, or my tank with furnace oil or stove oil, or the propane. a little bit of move on different fronts. there: gas down a bit, diesel up a bit, not too much to report on the other oils or fuels, but at the exact same time. Here we are, and it must be nice. And this is not a real criticism, but it's a reflection of how different life is for some people when the 450 people can attend a $500 plate evening with the Premier. So, you know, it's really quite clear that there's a lot of people struggling and while the Premier takes to the stage last night and touts the achievements of his government, and some are real, absolutely, but slightly tone deaf when you know as well as I do, most people are certainly not feeling that. They're not feeling the upsides. You know some of these things may manifest themselves to be positive in the future, but today, a lot of people absolutely struggling. Just look, and I'm going to keep talking about food. It's a public health crisis. It absolutely is. Here's some numbers to consider. These are from Food Banks Canada. The number of people visiting a food bank has gone up 35% nationally since 2019. In this province, up 27% in one year alone. So while $500 a plate is achievable for some, it's not for most. And on that front, you know, some drew an interesting trio. Moya Green, Tony Blair, and Premier Fury. Odd. Tony Blair was here? Giving political advice to the Premier? Eh, yeah, t- Tony Blair. I'm not so sure I'd want to spend much time with Mr. Blair. Remember, it's back in 2017 that the High Court in England ruled that he would not have to face any prosecution over his role in the Iraq War. So you can label him however you see fit, but interesting and... Sort of odd that former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair was here giving advice. Anyway, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at Let's come back and have a great show. That only happens when you call. Do not go away. Welcome back to the program. Okay, let's start on top of the board. Line number one, Sean, you're on the air. Hi, Sean. How you doing, Patty? I'm okay. How you doing?
2: Oh, not bad. I was just, uh, just driving by the Confederation building to notice the, the roof is off the place. So, Premier, he can fit his heading in the building this morning. Uh-oh. Yeah, like going on and on and on with all his accomplishments. But what's he doing about the, you know, the family who's who got a sick wife home with MS who can't get a hold of uh, her doctor and she's taking these, you know, drugs that are trying to suppress her, her MS but are probably slowly killing her. What's he doing about that?
1: I don't know. Is that a family circumstance that you're dealing with, Sean?
2: Well, yes. And what about you know what about the uh, you know what about the the man in the in, in the family who you know who has heart issues and can't get a family doctor? What's he doing about that?
1: Well, I mean, it's not for me to speak for anyone in that particular building. I know there's a bunch of incentives have been dangled around. Whether or not they're actually working, I don't know. Like we mentioned, Nova right. Scotia off the top, they had a record year last year in recruiting doctors—a record. I'm pretty sure we didn't. So no. I haven't heard an updated number of from the, the NLMA about, you know, the old number that we've been using, 125,000 people in the province without a family doctor. So I'm not really sure how anything is working in the recruitment file, but do you think that they're not yeah. trying at all, or you just think that they're having uh, very little luck with what they put forward?
2: I just think it, it reminds me, Patty, you know you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of your, you know, you know your best friend, uh, you know, your best friend's, Relationship is falling apart, but you look on Facebook and it seems like that they're the most loving couple in the world, right? It's just like there's a lot of smoke and mirrors going on here with our government. Like, okay, I wish I had to take my five hundred bucks and go to that uh, supper last night. I might have got a, you know, might have had a nice meal out of it. Because well, you know, the five hundred dollars that he gave me, I had to use that to pay off last year's light bill. So I mean, fine and Danny, you know, they're tr- they pro- they're probably trying, but. The, the, the healthcare here, like what about the what about the ten-year-old little boy or little girl that's waiting six months to get in and see the to, to, to see a psychologist or psychiatrist because they they can't go to school because their OCD is is so bad? Or what about the? It just goes on and on. What about the senior that goes over to the emergency room and got to wait two and a half hours standing up? A seven-year-old and Patty. This is just in my house. I don't have a big family. This is just my house. These issues are ha- happening. Like I said, I got a I got a young. A young mother, you know, mother of, of, of my kids who is sick and has is, is, is been trying to get a hold of her, her neurologist for five, four, five months. She's taking a medicine that is, in my opinion, is slowly killing her. And, and if she don't take this medicine, her, you know, it, 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 looks, it looks bad too on, on her outcome. So, but she's just, she's just trying to get a question answered. It's, it's just insane, Petty. It's insane how that man can stand up there and, and pump his chest and talk about all this great stuff. Patty, I, I can build a house tomorrow, but if I got no structure, it's going to blow down with one windstorm. Like, where's the structure to in in the healthcare? Fine and dandy. You're going to update the emergency room, forty million dollars. Sure, but that don't matter if you got a, a billion dollar emergency room. If you don't have the structure to run it, is it any good?
1: Bricks and mortar are just one component of healthcare. We all know that. What makes healthcare run are the people who work in healthcare. Now, I don't begrudge anyone wanting to update infrastructure. The emergency room at the Health Sciences hasn't changed, as far as I know, since the day they opened. Does it, is it a required sure. Reno? Probably so. The biggest question on that front for me was, if the province forecasted to cost uh, ten million dollars and the lowest bid came in at forty point five million dollars, I'd like to have a bit of an explanation as to the disparity between those two numbers.
2: Oh yeah, me too. I don't know, Patty. It's uh, like I said. It's, it seems like a lot of smoke and mirrors. Like I, I don't know. It, it seems like he's, uh, you know, his ego is after taking the better of well, him. Man, I got to be honest. I, I voted for Liberals. I voted for PCs. I voted for NDP. And I really thought that this man, I said, he's probably going to change things. Like instead of waiting five, instead of waiting twenty four hours when your seven year old mother in law goes over to, to the healthcare facility with pains in her back and pains in her, around her chest and pains here and there, that all indications that it could be a heart issue. And you're told to go out and stand up in the waiting room, and after two and a half hours, she had to come back home? So what? who did I fall on if she had to die that night? You know? And this is happening. This is happening in our province. There's sick people going over to the emergency room that are going home and that are dying. It's happening. I've heard the stories on your show. So, like, get your head. Out of you know where, Andrew Fiore, and let's see what you're going to do. Step up to the plate. Stop talking about the five hundred dollars you're giving people because that's not even paying off last year's light bill for some people. That's that's four meals for some families. That's all that is.
1: You know, uh, just a quick one, Sean. Uh, the MS-related story. Are you getting any support from the Multiple Sclerosis Society? If not, I can put you in contact with them. Maybe they can give some help. I know Zeta Taylor; she sent me a note, and I was thinking about it as you mentioned it. Would you like to yeah. call Zita and see if she can give you some assistance?
2: I, I I've talked to her in the past, but yes, I would definitely give her a call because it's just uh, even myself, Patty. I, I mean, even I'm emailing, even I'm emailing the you know the MS nurse, and and I'm not taking anything. I know they're bombarded. There's there's a couple of neurologists that are here. And they're and they're trying to do the whole province. I, I know the ins and outs of it also because you know the doctors are, are, are their hands are tied. I understand this. Like I'm not blaming anything on, on, on the MS doctors. I'm not blaming anything on the MS nurses. They're all wonderful people. But I'm assuming that that M- MS nurse is probably getting you know a, a thousand emails a day. And so how can one person? And that's the other side of it. If we have one MS nurse who looks after all the issues. Or Parkinson's, MS, any neurology, uh, anything to do with the, you know,
1: with that. Any uh, neurological issue? Yes, I understand that yes, one. Right? Sean, Sean, I'll give you the number here to speak with Zita. Okay. Maybe she can give you some assistance. I, 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 or nor can she make any promises, but she's a good person. She'll tr- definitely try to help. Yes. Okay. Okay. Six nine one. Yes, sir.
3: Four zero two
1: zero. Four zero two zero. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I will give it a shout, but it's just,
2: uh, and it's just like one thing after another with the healthcare. And that man to stand up yesterday and or last night and get on with like the provinces, you know, we're we're in top-notch shape here. Come on now. Yeah, I, I would, we're I, not. I no, and I would have, I would have appreciated more if he had to talk about. Yeah, we're in this situation, and, and we're trying to do this. But look, here, I want to, I want you guys in Newfoundland to recognize that I do know that there's this issue with this, and there, and he knows that this is going on, Patty.
1: I didn't hear the entire speech. I only heard the highlights like most people did. I'm not one of the 450 in that room. I mean, there's been some positive change in the recent past, but I mean, we can't hang our hat on increased taxes, corporate and individual, and increased royalties from the oil industry, of which we have very, very, very little control of. The agreements have been signed. It's a volatile global commodity. So I'm not going to say we just got lucky, but... Some things have turned the tide, but the provincial coffers are vastly different than circumstances impacting families. They're just two different things. You know, so like even when we had Minister O'Regan on the show last week, and he said when assessing whether or not to apply the federal carbon tax to this province, his first reference was to the fact that, you know, the most recent update from uh, the government here was that uh, the deficit has turned into a surplus so consequently but that has nothing to do with it the carbon tax has the biggest impact on on uh, consumers on individuals not on the provincial government of course it has some impact because they consume and burn and use fuels as well but it's just a strange way to look at things and uh, yeah. i've i've been to one evening with the premier but i was only there as a member of the media sitting at the media table i didn't buy a ticket or anything and that's you just know. the way it goes it's a cheerleading session that's every premier who was ever hosted this event. They all take the exact same approach. I don't know if the premier recognized out loud all the difficulties the province is facing and individuals are facing. I don't know because I wasn't there, but right. they—they just—that's what happens at those things. It's you know just speaking to, and for the most case, the muckety mucks who can afford to be there, and painting a rosy picture because they need. The government needs those people to be confident and to stay and to invest and to grow in this province and not head for greener pastures. Uh, Sean, I appreciate your time. Give Zita a call and stay in touch. Let me know how things work out.
2: I will, sir, Petty, Thanks a lot for taking, taking my call. appreciate it. You take good care of yourself. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye.
1: Uh, uh, okay, so we're going to try to stay on time here with the breaks. Uh, coming up after is the mayor of the city of St. John's. as Danny Breen. Laurie, you're in the queue as well. Talk about... A troubling story. We'll get more information from Lori and Jay wants to go to the grocery store, talk about the prices there and don't go away.
0: Weekdays on VOCM. It's open line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four.
1: Say good morning to the mayor of the city of St. John's. That's Danny Breen. Mayor Breen, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How about you?
4: Very good, thank you.
1: Good. What's on tap this morning before I put a few questions to you?
4: Sure, no problem. I just want to talk about a couple of things uh, in recent days uh, that have uh, that we've announced. First of all, the, uh, um, the installation of the electric charging uh, stations for electric vehicles. Uh, we unveiled the first uh, six of those um, at the Farmers Market, at the Southlands Community Centre, and at the Paul Reynolds Centre. Um, and those are operational now. We have another I think there's another twenty uh, to to go in this uh, in this phase, and uh, uh, we're we're moving forward on those. So we we go to have some more availability for uh, charging stations in the city.
1: And if I remember correctly, I think it's a dollar fifteen an hour plus the parking fee if required. So yeah. how many electric vehicles are in the metro region? Do you happen to know?
4: Yeah. right now I don't know, and I understand that they're not tracked right now uh, by uh, by motor registration. Uh, but uh, nominally, I've heard that there's uh, that there's a few hundred in the city, and that number is growing. Uh, I notice it even when I'm out for a walk in the neighborhood. I notice more and more in uh, in driveways uh, around my area. So uh, it's certainly a growing area, and uh, it's good that we can start building that infrastructure.
1: How do we calculate how many charges would be required for municipalities to install? Because the vast majority of residents, of course, and I know people come to St. John's from even the communities surrounding the city and from elsewhere in the province, but most people will charge at home. So what's the calculation for how many charges you think are required?
4: I don't know what the details of that are, but our sustainability coordinator will work through those numbers on a national basis and then make um, make adjustments for what we have here uh, locally. Um, I, it, is a, it, it is a growing area, uh, there are some challenges with it, certainly the downtown area will, will present some challenges in the residential area, uh, but uh, working through that uh, as we move forward. Uh, so what that number is, I, I don't know. Uh, I do know that it's going to be beyond what, uh, where where we are in the, in the very near future.
1: What's the associated cost, even with the most recent announcement? Do we have any partners like this hydro partner? And I know it's all the same pot of money
4: pretty realistically, but what's the cost? So this project uh, cost about two hundred and sixty-five, uh, two hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars. Half of which was uh, covered uh, through grants. So uh, it's about fifty percent right now, and uh, then we'll uh, we'll see where we go from there. A couple of quick
1: ones now. Here we go. Winter season. Everyone's favorite as a politician, snow clearing. I saw it reported that there was a bunch of bids that came in. Uh they fluctuated though from three hundred thousand odd for the lowest bid up to the eight hundred thousand. Did the scope of work change, and who does the downtown snow clearing anyway? Some people are caught off guard thinking, doesn't the city take care of it so how does that work, and how do we explain the disparity in the bids so there's some routes
4: that are done uh on a uh on a, on a tender basis uh that's not unusual to see that wide variety of variance in that. I know that uh, our staff. Uh, when they put it out they are uh, very careful with the with the tendering uh, amounts because you have to look at not only the cost but the equipment being used and the amount of equipment it's uh, and our, our staff review that and uh, so they uh, they they ended up on the uh, on the amount that not only is uh, is is the most financially uh, best bid but also can provide the level of service
1: so that's normal for there to be uh, five hundred thousand dollars in between
4: bits i wouldn't say it's normal but it's something that you see now and then because uh different companies have different uh different ways of calculating what they need in order to do this business i guess it depends too on the competition for their services and the competition for the equipment that they have so uh that's uh, that's not unusual for these types of things i think a sell one the other day for uh, for uh, grass cutting uh, on public spaces, and it was a very wide variance in the, in the lowest and highest bid.
1: Let's talk revenue side in the winter. The winter parking ban kicks in for a portion of the city today. The rest of it in the four, I believe the fourth of January. Can you help us understand, or to justify, how tickets are given out on nights where there's no snow, no plow, no worries at all? It happened to me. I fell asleep on the couch, I went out to move the truck, and there was a ticket on it. And it was as clear as could be, not a flick of snow on the ground. Why does the city do it, and how can you justify those tickets?
4: Yeah, so what we do now is we we have a a bit of a grace period at the beginning where we'll give out uh, some warnings that the uh, parking ban... Uh, the uh, on street parking ban is coming in and that's areas outside the downtown um, you know it's it's very difficult to come out and and announce that the parking ban's on tonight or that it's not on tonight then when you issue the tickets then you have to uh, go through whether there was good, proper notice given so the rule of thumb in municipalities is that once the parking once the on street parking ban is on that uh, there's no more on street uh, parking permitted. Uh, for that time, uh, so that's very common amongst municipalities. Uh, it's it can be tough, and there will be people that will make mistakes, and and and, and things just happen. But we do give some uh, some ability to ease into it. We also don't put it in till the fourth of January, as opposed to others that uh, other municipalities that put it in on December first.
1: Is there not an opportunity for a bylaw officer who's patrolling the city streets, you know, whether it be to issue these subsidy tickets, knowing full well they don't see any snow? There's not a single plough dispatch from any of the depots. Is, can there not be a bit of common sense and fairness associated with these tickets? Because 75 bucks to have a winter a winter parking ban ticket when there's no winter on the ground, I mean, isn't there room for a bit of common sense and fairness?
4: Well, Patty, I, I think that the rule is, is that When we get complaints on the other side too, that people are parked on the street when there is snow. So we, uh, you know, and then the plough has to go out around the cars and it creates problems on on the snow clearing of the streets. So this is in effect overnight uh, during, uh, in some times when we have incidents, we'll put it in effect during the day, but generally it's an overnight thing. And it's something that I feel people just have to, uh, adjust to. They have to have that parking space and it's part of the uh, the the thing that you need in order that we can get the streets cleared as quickly as possible, which is what everybody wants.
1: Let's talk about uh, and this is paradise, but of course it will be very similar pressures felt by all municipalities. Inside their $41 million budget is an increase in property tax, is an increase in water and sewer charges as well. Now they're not massive but they're there and every cent counts these days as you know full well here in this province regardless of what community you're living in. You know, what's the effort given inside the city because we've just seen some raises handed out through collective bargaining, but then of course that trickles through for the non-unionized staff. How careful can you say the city has been in making sure that to try to protect me, the the property tax uh, resident, that I'm not paying because we've just seen an inflation in people's rate of pay because not everyone's getting a bump in pay these days. and It certainly doesn't keep up with the uh, consumer price index for most industries, most businesses. So How tight are you operating your own ship? Because if we're going to see property tax increases, so I guess, number one, do you think that's what's coming in this city? And number two, how careful is the city being to manage their in-house affairs versus rely on property taxes?
4: So, Patty, one of the things that that, uh, that people uh, should realize is that a lot of the cost pressures that we see as homeowners, uh, we see the the same cost pressures on us as a municipality. Uh, For example, I think uh, the price of diesel is going to be uh, quite high in 2023 compared to what we had in 21 and, and, and even 22. So uh, those are challenges. And just talked about snow clearing. That's an amount of money that has to be, uh, has to be paid because the snow has to be, has to be cleared and the buses uh, have to run. Uh, so we've been very prudent. Uh, we've, uh, we've used our uh, resources wisely. We've, we uh, uh, invested um, any surpluses that we've had over the past number of years uh, to to reduce our debt and to and into capital expenditures. So uh, I think that we're in a good uh, position right now. Uh, we're still working through the final parts of the budget. We'll be bringing ours down on December twelfth. But we fully understand the pressures that the residents and the and the homeowners in this city face. Uh, we face them as well. And we're very cognizant of those pressures right now. Are we forecasting an increase in taxes? We uh, haven't gotten down to that part yet. We'll have that budget finalized on the, on the 12th of December. Uh, we're in the, uh, the late stages of that now.
1: Appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Breen. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, St. John's Mayor Danny Breen, let's go to line number two. Good morning, Laurie. You're on the air.
5: Good morning, Patty.
1: Welcome to the program.
5: Thank you. I'm very nervous about this call, but I'm hoping, Patty, that somebody out there that will be listening will be able to help me or has gone through the same situation that my family is actually going through right now with my mother. Um, we lost my father four years ago, and since then, mom has been being catfished over the internet.
1: What's what exactly is happening?
5: Um. She's been talking to this person on the Internet. We don't know, man, woman, group of people. And they've she's been sending them money. They've had um, excuse for everything. Um, she has gone to extremes. She has gotten very close to this person. She believes this person loves her and is going to come here and they're going to get a house together and oh, blah, no. blah, blah. And uh, Patty, fast forwarding, she's just recently sold her big five-bedroom house and she has to be out by the 7th of december she has nowhere to go and i recently got a message from my aunt that mom plans on we believe giving this money from the selling of her home to this person patty i have called everybody i've called seniors advocate. i've made a complaint with the rnc i've called the realtor of the house i've called the lawyer of the house There's, i've called mom's family doctor and he tells me that this is not cognitive, this is behavior, and there's really nothing he can do. Because apparently, and this is what everybody is telling me, she is in her right mind. Now, Patty, I've heard from people that when they've gone to mom's house, she's in the kitchen with the oven door open because she can't even afford the oil to put in the house. Her phone got caught yesterday. She doesn't have an insurance on her van because she stopped paying it. They had a small second mortgage on the home, which she stopped paying. She had no choice but sell the house because the bank was going to take it. She's gone to my father's friends, asking them for large amounts of money, $65,000 actually. And this person has been going and handing my mother money cash, and she has been sending everything over to this person. And I've been financially helping her. I've had to wash like wash my hands of it basically over the past year because mentally, I'm just exhausted. I'm so worried oh about my mother, and I like everywhere I turn, Patty, it's we can't do nothing. She's in her right mind. But to me, she's not in her right mind.
1: This is terrible. And so all of this happened over the course of years, and nobody had any idea what was going on.
5: I did. I I found out because after my father passed, I was the one taking her to the bank. I was helping her with, you know, everything. And and so I could go into her bank account and see what was going on. Anyways, this one day I went in there and I seen that she had wired every bit of her pension check over to this person. And... uh, and he was cute enough because i seen the conversations. I I got into her account and i seen he told her, uh, when you go to the bank, tell them the money is for your granddaughter, that she's down here, a student studying, so they won't put a hold on the money like he told her everything to do because she never knew how to do nothing. And, you know, and then she'll hand that money over to him and she'll call me and say, oh, I need my brakes done on my vehicle or my lights are going to be caught. And me, I never knew. Until, like I said, I went into her bank account and seen it. And so I called the police. I've started calling lawyers, doctors, you name it. And I've three and a half years, all I've been hearing is she's in her right mind.
1: This is absolutely terrible. And you know, it goes on more often than we realize because the stories don't yeah. get told because people are too embarrassed to say that they've been hoodwinked. Yeah. You yeah. know, and there's, I mean, this is the season, too. Uh, this The holiday season is prime opportunity for people to be scanned because we've got that charitable giving sort of air about so many people. So this story hopefully is a fair warning to anybody else out there. And it's not that you're going to think that your your elderly parents have all of a sudden lost it and are unable to manage their own affairs on their Facebook account or what have you. But having this ongoing conversation through telling them how much you love them and want to protect them because there's someone lurking around every digital corner that's willing to do whatever this nuisance criminal has done. Do we know where this person is?
5: He tells her right now he's in prison in Qatar and that uh, he has this big $600,000 check that he's getting, but in order to get the check, my mother has to send his lawyer $1,100 and then they're going to release this six hundred thousand dollar check, and he's going to come here to Newfoundland and meet my mother November or December seventh, and they're going to run off and buy a house together. Boy, oh boy, uh, oh boy, you
1: know. If he could climb through the fiber cables and get a hold of that person, oh boy, yeah. this is infuriating.
5: Yeah. You know, and my family, like, I'm very concerned. Her church family's. My mother's a very, you know, very. She goes to church all the time. They're all very concerned. They've spoke to her. She's lied to their faces. She's not the same person that she was. He has taught her to lie and con and conceit. Like, she's just, I don't know. Like, if she said it was the sky was blue, I'd have to go outside and check. And so I feel terrible saying that about my own mother. But I don't know her anymore. And I'm so concerned that coming December 7th, When she's out of the house and the money is gone, where's she going? Who's going to take care of her? Who's responsible for her then?
1: Are you able to be?
5: No. The problem is I live in a basement apartment with stairs. My daughter, my son, we all have stairs in our home. And she's 75. She has She's fallen many, many times. Actually, she's beat up pretty good right now from falling in her driveway. And she just can't do the stairs. And I've taken her to apartments, uh, trying to find her apartments with no stairs or very limited amount of stairs. No luck. But it's like she doesn't want to take the apartment because she so believes that this person is going to be here the day she goes to get that check. And they're going to go get a place together.
1: Yeah, and they're not. They're not going to be here. Um, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if there's anything I can think of or to say to point you in the right direction, get her some protection and or to maybe take this person to task. But if this story is not only to tell us your personal story, which I'm, I'm sure everyone listening is just furious that it's happened to your mother and consequently happened to you, but hopefully Uh, It's a warning sign to others who are listening. What I also think is a good idea, if you'd like to want to help others here, you should absolutely report this to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre or the Competition Bureau or both, because then it's on file. There'll be some type of investigation, some further warnings will be out there so that people will hear this story far and wide and hopefully it doesn't happen to their family like it happened to yours. So you could do as you see fit, obviously, Laurie. I know you're upset. But I've, I think that might be a good idea to report this to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. It's easy to connect with them. Uh, if you just Google it up at home, or I can give you a toll-free number right now if you'd like.
5: Yeah, sure. i got 10 in my hand, Eddie.
1: Okay, so the number to contact them and file a formal complaint is 1-888-495-8501. Zero yep. one. Yep. Okay. I'm sorry it happened, Lori. Make that call, and hopefully no one else falls prey to the same criminal nuisance on the other end. Thank you, Patty. Take good care of yourself. Thanks so much, okay, Laurie. bye-bye. Man, I'll tell you what, there's some evil out there lurking around every corner. And again, it's not to make your parents or your aunt or your uncle or nan or pop feel like you don't trust them anymore and they're not able to watch their own P's and Q's, not able to protect themselves. But sometimes, you know, the old Facebook scam that really got me going one time was they look at your page and they see that you're, you're the grandmother, say, for instance, to a bunch of kids. One of them is John. And then so the nuisance on the other end, they can find out where you are and how to connect with you. And they call you and they say, Nanny, it's John. I got hurt in an accident. I need $500. Next thing you know, Nanny's out $500, bucks, right? Because cares about Johnny, loves Johnny, wants to help Johnny. This is a ripe time of the year for scams to be absolutely everywhere. So, just that kind of conversation with, oh, did you happen to hear that story? What happened to Lori's mom? Maybe just plants the seed of, okay, I have to be very cautious, very careful with who I talk to, about uh, links I click on, all those types of things. So, that's an awful story, but let's not let it happen to your family. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Jay's talking groceries. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number three. Good morning, Jay. You're on the air.
6: Hey, Patty. How are you?
1: I'm doing fine, thanks. How about you?
6: Yeah, not bad. Not bad, I guess, but uh, first-time caller, by the way. Welcome to the show. Uh, yeah, I just want to let you know that, like, I went into Sobeys there yesterday evening when I got out of work there. And, uh, back then, you know, I like, pick uh, up a little bit of fruit and a few little things for lunch and, uh, and uh, dinner times, you know, and that, and... I walked up to the checkout there, and I took it out of the cart and put it on the conveyor belt there. And the, the girl at checkout there, she was checking it through, and I was putting it in my two little sobies bags because that's all I picked. I brought in, two bags, which was enough to pick up what I wanted. And uh, after I got it all checked in, the, the bill came up to $273. And she said, my God, she said, hold on. She said, i got to go back. So she went back to her computer, and she checked, and uh, uh, she said, oh, yeah, that's right. But she said, I can't believe that was $273 in that two bags. And I said, well, no. I said, this is what we're going through. I said, this is awful, awful, awful. I said, I don't even know how the seniors or how the, working, the non-working people can afford to even walk into a grocery store, let alone anything else, you know?
1: Oh, I do know. I do most of the grocery shopping in my house, and it's unbelievable. You bring in your bag, and you barely got enough to cover the bottom of the bag, and it's 50 bucks you know? Yeah. So I don't know how people make ends meet here. And there's other areas where cost of living and governments can do some things about it. When it comes to the price of groceries, I'm not so sure what anyone can do about it. I know that there's record profits, even though there's record uh, operating costs for a grocery stores, well, but they're doing pretty great. Sometimes I think politicians... When they are harping on and on and on with half-truths and and untruths about what's causing all these high prices, it gives the grocery store chains an opportunity to hide behind it and just let the politicians make everyone think that it's nobody's fault but theirs. There's absolutely wiggle room, and there's some price freezing that's happened at Loblaws and stuff, I get it, but... The prices are out of control, and I don't even know what government can actually do about it. You know, picking winners and losers, but they're going to subsidize, you know, and then adding the foolishness like the sugar tax, what have you. So I'm with you, and like most everybody listening to this program this morning, walking into the grocery store is not a pleasant part of my day anymore. It's a worry about how much it's going to cost.
6: Yeah, and you were 100 percent right. But I I liked it when you brought up the grocery tax or the, the sugar tax there because like uh, you know that uh, I guess that little man in the brown shoes and their that had his $500 plate dinner, uh, he should have made $25 a plate instead of being a bit extravagant. And uh, and furthermore, like I uh, will tell you, I walked into the grocery store, and then I went in to the bar to have a beer before I went home. And when I walked into the bar, all these video lotto games were full. And I said to one of the people there, I said, hey, I said, what's this, Christmas? Oh, no, that $500 that you threw out by is really good for us, guys. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, like, you know, 50,000 probably people that got that $500 check is pushing buttons on a on a on a video motto game or ripping off tickets. Like, give it to the people that needs it.
1: Yeah, those VLTs, you know, if I know some businesses will say without them they go under, but those are dangerous. If you have an addictive personality, they can suck you in and never let you go. And we can all, we've we all seen it, you know, and sometimes it breaks my heart to see sitting there just sort of blank in the face and whap, 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 whap. Boy, I remember when there was going to be a proposed class action suit. Against the, but Let me give out this little tidbit about trying to save a few bucks. I was never one to go to the Flyers over the years. Not that I'm extravagant. I kind of try to watch the money. But now, I'm like everybody. I'm doing it. So if you're on Twitter, not necessarily you, Jay, but anyone who's on Twitter, follow Chris Donovan. He goes through the Flyers so you don't have to. And his uh, account is called WalkingManNL, and he gives out the, the the Flyers and the deals and the specials all the time. So just a tidbit that might be helpful when you're on your way to plan your... Your supper and your shopping today. Jay, anything else you want yeah. to talk about this morning?
6: Yeah, and uh, that uh, that guy there, the, the mayor of uh, Stephenville there, yep. uh, he flew back on Risley's uh, private jet there. Uh, that's not bad. At least he confessed and he did it, and nothing more said to it. But uh, this uh, fury fellow here, this premier, so called premier, like, you know, uh, when he was asked about uh, the little fishing trip, if he had a fessed up and said, that I was down on a fishing trip. Mr. Risley invited me down there. Uh, it was a paid trip. We talked about a bit of business, a bit of wind farms and whatever. Uh, it probably would have been nothing more said, but he never fessed up. And now they're asking for receipts. Like, produce them, man, just produce them and get rid of this whole crap or else resign or the other. You know, like, enough is enough. I mean, like, like, you know.
1: Optics will rule the day in politics. It does now, and it always will. Whether or not they talked about wind kind of doesn't matter, does it? Because those things and conflicts of interest and the overlap inside this very small pool of the mighty and the wealthy in this province, you know whether it be Tom Rose, I don't know if if that's really that big a deal. Some people think they should all resign. But this is vastly different when we're talking about the authority that the province has for granting permits and green lighting projects versus... The town of stevenville which is already all in on this particular project so yeah uh, i think the premier possibly made it uh, made it worse for himself the way he reacted to the question but uh, your point is taken jay and i appreciate making time for the program as a first-time caller you're always welcome
6: yep. sure. thank you man. you're welcome you take good there. care Thanks.
1: you too all right bye-bye uh break time for the news so when we come back there's a caller in the queue wants to talk about municipal taxes Yee. and then we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away.
0: Take a break. Join us weekdays from 12.30 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, caller. You're on the air.
7: Yes, Patty. How are you this morning?
1: I'm doing fine, thanks. How about yourself?
7: Yes, good. i glad to hear. Um, concerning uh, municipal taxes, I uh, areas and uh, what I should say... I'm a first-time caller, by the way. Welcome. Okay. Uh, The areas of concern that's probably there, and they're outstanding, and it's going on and on over a period of time. And uh, I've noticed uh, right off the bat that uh, when Mayor Breen said we get uh, snow-clearing issues, you know, in the city of St. John's, and also in Mount Pearl, by the way, uh, the issue is concerning um, what happens to the funds that they have for their budget, after you have an easy winter, like last year was an easy winter, and I say overtime hours was reduced. Uh, you know, less manpower of work, less manpower of work was used, uh, less equipment was used, and all that's taken into the budget. But where does the money go after the fact? That what they save does that go to next year's budget? That's well,
1: just it, it, it's a big question. I don't think there's one simple answer to that. Like, for instance, they now see increased cost of operations based on a new contract that was signed by the unionized members, and then consequently there was a salary increase inside some non-unionized members. So does some of it go to capital infrastructure uh, program? I don't know. I don't know if there's a distinct or succinct breakdown of every dollar that was saved in snow clearing and or salt usage and or manpower last winter. I can try to find out.
7: Uh, that would be good because there should be some transparency to transparency to the taxpayers. Like say of Mount Pearl and St. John's, you know they're both in it together, and I'm sure they converse with each other and say, well, this is how we can save. Now we're saving like this. We're going to follow your suit. This is how you're saving. Now we're going to we're going to we're going to do the same thing and find an area of saving money because it's working for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the penny pinching has got to be the order of the day, right? And I know, like, for instance, the unions, the, all the organized labor uh, leaders will say, you cannot ha- have the province and or municipalities, you know, get back on track on the backs of their workers. But at some point, we've got to be very thrifty. We've got to manage every single dollar as carefully as possible because it's one thing to be able to go to the taxpayers and be able to get the desired revenue, but sometimes that's blood out of turnips kind of stuff.
7: Yes, it is petty, but, uh, you know, like when you're talking about running your ship, you know, the taxpayers uh, are running their ship. You know, majority of voters who get the elected officials in, which is a good point, uh, indeed, uh, are probably mostly seniors who are really fine and struggling right now to run their ship, and the young families who sometimes are getting to... Their resources are stretched so thin that... They probably got to, you know, refer to food banks and do things that they never had to do in their life before.
1: Well, we see it. 27% increase uh, year-over-year food bank usage here in this province, just in one year. Across the country, the numbers are staggering as well. What was it I read this morning? So, 35% since 2019 nationally, 27% in one year alone here in this province. And they report the same thing. It's not just those who are living in poverty. There's people that are full-time working. There's people who are middle-income type of folks. There's families. There's more seniors. So... (laughs) I continue to talk about food because I know we've got a so-called crisis in healthcare care and a variety of other areas, but food issues and food insecurity is a public health crisis as far as I'm concerned.
7: Yes, good point, and well taken and understood. But uh, what are our elected officials in municipal going to do to probably keep costs down or keep uh, the taxes uh, at least frozen? Because one point I like have is whether it's true or not true, When Mount Pearl had that strike, and I'm glad it's over by the way, um, money was saved. So does that reflect on uh, keeping the debt down because of that? Because if it do, well, we shouldn't see an increase in taxes.
1: I'm not holding my breath for that outcome here in this particular city. I guess we'll all find out on the 12th of December. But, you know, I, I understand when the municipal councils will say, The pressures you feel, we feel as well, and so trying to make ends meet, and they're obliged by legislation to offer balanced budgets, but, you know, again, with the pressures we're all feeling, and they're very real, I don't know how many people can absorb an increase in fees and taxes again this year.
7: Oh yeah, the taxpayer right now was stretched before uh, all these increases that were wickedly taking place right now, and now... I mean to say, we're going. We're below the range where we can handle it. No, leaving that that topic right there. Uh, I like for more input from callers to call in on that and uh, express reviews because there must be some honest, uh, you know, uh, concern about that. What I would like to talk about one more thing, Petty, yep. and that is the extra cost of like. Uh, in Mount, uh, did you know that in Mount Pearl, uh, there's one entity. Uh, what they're doing in Mount Pearl and what they do in St. John's uh, and Paradise, they collect their recyclables in St. John's and Paradise uh, uh, once every two weeks. And in Mount Pearl, they collect it every week. Now, wouldn't it be cost-saving if they followed suit with St. John's and Paradise and say every two weeks? Because you got to look at the cost of fuel, the maintenance, man hours of work, the equipment repairs when they're used more, and you know it's just common sense and the common taxpayer sees this too and that could reflect on probably reducing some of the cost of mount pearl and i like to hear someone from uh, the city of mount pearl uh, get on and talk about that and be and be honest and straight with the taxpayers and say yeah we can fix this
1: just so i can put that question to them in an appropriate fashion what exactly did you say off the top about the recyclables just so i understand okay. it clearly
7: we us here are collected every week in Mount Pearl. Like yep. We put it out to the curb. Now a separate truck comes along to pick up the recyclables. Right, a separate truck now. And they go around to every street in Mount Pearl like, you know, Monday to Friday. In St. John's and in Paradise, they get their truck every second week to take the recyclables. Right. So I'm just trying to be clear on that.
1: Yeah, oh, I, I'm, I'm just trying to be clear as well. That's why I had to re-ask unfortunately. So your suggestion is if they had a uh, a, a schedule that was in lockstep between the communities would present a cost savings.
7: Well, copy us, St. John's and Paradise. Why not? It'll be cost savings, and uh, it'll be every second week, and it'll be surely less cost because of
1: reduced man uh, hours and, and the trucks yeah, on the
8: road.
7: Man hours, less fuel, and yep. fuel going wickedly up, and some of them are diesel. And less man hours of work, equipment repairs, and uh, less money coming out of the pot for wages, and that will you know, positively positively impact the uh, taxpayer.
1: Uh, Yes, I think that's an excellent suggestion because any opportunity, because I live in St. John's, my recyclables every two weeks, we're able to uh, store them in the home. There's four of us. So I would imagine that would be manageable for communities regardless. You know, there's probably no need to be out there uh, every single week picking up the recyclables. Another good point. I'll put it to the mayor the next time we get a chance to speak with him.
7: Yes, I'd like for it to have an impact, too, to address it and uh, fix it before an election comes up, because they're all gung-ho uh, at election time. Oh, we'll do this, we'll do that. And then when the time comes, they're in. Oh, well, I can put that in a long finger now. But anyway, Patty, I'd like for more input from callers to address that and uh, show voice their concern, because the more, the more they call, the more impact it has uh, to, to reach in uh, the right-appropriate officials uh, who, who manage our tax dollars.
1: Hopefully that's the, uh, the case, sir. I really appreciate making time as a first-time caller. You're always welcome. Thank you very much, Petty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Dave, do you still want me to take it? Okay, let's go to line number two. Harold, you're on
5: the air. Uh, hi. Hi. Uh, hi, Petty. This is Harold. Uh, I'm a first-time caller, to be honest with you. Excellent. And one thing I'm noticing that nobody's mentioning, Patty, at these department stores, you go in now and you buy one, you get the second one half price and stuff like that. There's a lot of people out there, unfortunately, that can't even afford to scrape up enough to get that one product, let alone buy two and get the third one free. Nobody's mentioning that.
1: Yeah, I mean, the grocery stores will present it as a cost-saving option, but fair (laughs) enough. If you can't afford one, then the, the deal with the second or third is not really much of a deal. Yeah.
5: You know what I mean? Most people, you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, you only scrape up enough to get that one can of pasta sauce, not buy two and get the third one free. They can't even afford the second one. Yeah, so I, mean, out there. I, I mean, I
1: know full well that they have probably got some issues surrounding their own, uh, their own storage, you know, because people are buying less. And so, whether it be at the retail option and/or the grocery store, so the need to get it out the door before it expires and gets yeah. thrown away or donated to a food bank, they will say, "Okay, well, this bag of crispers is three ninety nine. I don't know how much there, three ninety nine. Okay. But if you buy, uh, if you buy two, the second mm-hmm. one is three bucks. Yeah, fine. Well, I can't afford the first one. That's your point, I yeah. assume. So, yeah.
9: Right. Okay. Some people could us feedback on that. that Anytime. All, all right. Thanks, Patty.
1: Thanks, Harold. All the best. You too. See ya. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Alice Keogh. She's at the uh, Association for New Canadians. She's the Community Connections Coordinator. Alice, after the break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. As advertised, let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Community Connections Coordinator at the Association for New Canadians. That's Alice Keo Good morning, Alice. You're on the air.
10: Good morning, Patty. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Happy to do it. Welcome to the program.
10: Thank you so much. What's going on? <laughs> What's going on? Well... Um, I'm so excited to be on with you this morning to talk about our first ANC Toy Drive. It's going to be happening this Saturday, December 3rd, from noon until 4 o'clock, in the parking lot of our ESL Training Center at 148 Elizabeth Avenue. So if you're not familiar with the area, uh, Rennies River Elementary School is right there on Elizabeth Avenue, and our ESL Training Center is directly behind that building, so I kind of... Sandwiched between Rennies River and St. Patrick's Mercy Home, uh, Smithville Crescent, Elizabeth Avenue. So there'll be lots of signage, and hopefully it'll be really busy, so it should be easily uh, identifiable as you're coming by.
1: Uh, I-, I grew up on Smithville Crescent. Uh, so it's the old Puy Tenth Parish Hall, right? That's correct, Yeah. Okay. And so you're looking—I don't know how to couch this. So there's been a lot of newcomers in the recent past here, and there's a lot of positive upside to it. You know, especially when we talk about folks coming from Ukraine and they are leaving their country quickly for the obvious reasons and in some cases running for their very lives, are they coming with much?
11: You know they
10: yes, and no. I think everybody's experience is a little bit different, you know, for yeah, for some, they're coming with just the clothes on their backs, you know, bare minimum with what they could leave with. Um, so you know it's really important for us to be able to help them as much as we possibly can. You know we want to you know try to imagine us being in their footsteps you know look at the folks out on the west coast in portabasque you know and what happened with them with hurricane fiona um you know literally overnight their worlds were turned upside down and we're seeing this in ukraine and, and other parts of the world unfortunately are in crisis every day and so we here at the anc want to make sure that we're giving you know our newcomers best foot forward in a new life here in Newfoundland and Labrador and you know part of that is this toy drive and reaching out to the community and the community is incredibly generous we know this of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians that no matter what the cause is that we will always step up and support one another whether they were born here in our province or whether they've made this province their home and you know just as an example the St. John's Caps under 13A team uh, held a toy drive last night and, you know, donated, you know, $100 in cash and gift cards and toys for our toy drive. We actually had another lady named Maisie Crowder from Chance Cove who made a Ukrainian, like a quilt with Ukrainian flower on it and raised over $1,300 for a toy drive. So the kindness and the generosity of spirit just never ceases to amaze me, and I, I think we're just seeing this outpouring of empathy for newcomers um, from all ages, all demographics um, because we really recognize that we are lucky that we're in a position to help people. And and that's what we're going to do.
1: So the, the details are where and when one more time, because I have another couple of questions for you if you don't
10: mind. <laughs> Absolutely. So Saturday, December 3rd, starting at 12 o'clock until 4, 148 Elizabeth Avenue, we are asking that your gift be unwrapped in the 20 to $40 price range. And it's, it's really important, you know, to be no war, no violence themed toys, you know, toy guns and things like that. We would like to stay away from those things and no food as well. And we'll also accept gift cards because we can use that to help supplement the toys if we see that maybe there's, there's a gap. You know, maybe if there's a lot of toys for the little ones, we can use those gift cards to, you know, get some things for older youth.
1: Yeah, because sometimes that kind of gets missed, right? You know, you go toy shopping, and you've got this picture in your mind of a 10-year-old for some reason, as opposed to the 18-year-old who has a much different uh, set of uh, needs or wants or likes. So fair enough. Gift card is always a great idea.
10: Absolutely. And we also have uh, two other uh, businesses that are opening their doors to allow toys to be dropped off there as well. So Caligro Insurance on Higgins' line and the Conservation Corps on Austin Street. So people can drop off toys there Monday to Friday uh, by the 13th of December.
1: Excellent. And hopefully people will take up the charge and do exactly that. Help us understand the process and the relationship with the government and the communities when the newcomers arrive. In particular, housing, how does it work? Who leads the charge on that front? And how are we finding housing for the newcomers when we have so many people who are talking about the housing crunch and the vacancy rate was 9% last year, now it's around 3 in the city of St. John's. How does the process work?
10: There, there's no doubt, you know, we are definitely in, in a housing crisis and of course we recognize that. So we actually have a team um, on our staff who their dedicated job is to find housing. So they are on, you know, Marketplace, they are on Kijiji, they are making phone calls and developing relationships with landlords and businesses and, you know, all these kinds of like stakeholders in the community to help find housing for people. Some might be temporary, some might be more permanent on a long-term basis. We've also called upon the community and the, again, the kindness, I, I can't, it's, it's overwhelming to talk about, but we've also had a lot of members of the community come forward and host people in their home. So that's something that is, is definitely very unique and very special. So if anybody, if any of the listeners are out there, you know, and they want to help and maybe if they have the room, maybe they have a the basement apartment that they, perhaps they can afford to rent for a little bit less for a while, or they have an extra room or two in their house that they could, you know, to open their home to somebody in need. Um, that's something that the ANC definitely can help with. So so people out there, you know, think about how you can help. Um, you know, so like, yes, housing is difficult. We all We all recognize that. But like I said, we have an amazing team that is working all day, every day on finding housing for all these individuals coming here. And it's being found. It's working. People are getting homes. And people can get homes. They can get jobs. And all of that leads to staying here and, and building community here and hopefully a long lasting relationship with people minds in Labrador. How
1: do we how how do we deal with covering costs, because let's say, whether it be Ukraine or Afghanistan or an African nation, what have you, there's going to very likely be a language gap. So while we take English as a second language, and I know that happens very quickly upon arrival, you know, to get some of the basic English, English established so that you can go out and find a job and you can be providing for your family, how do we approach covering costs with the lag time between arrival and being actually prepared, English and otherwise, to get a job?
10: We actually have some programs already in place that we invite all our newcomers to attend. We we run conversation circles at our language school. We we run them in the day. There's conversations going on in the evening to accommodate people who are perhaps working during the day. Um, We have conversation circles happening at the hotels. We have social groups that newcomers are invited to attend either weekly, biweekly, or monthly. So there's a lot of social programs and educational programs that we are offering, whether it be virtually Or in person and like I said some of these programs have been in place anyway so now we're just welcoming these new people into these already existing programs and you know for anybody that's interested you know all it takes is kind of a look at our social media and you can see the programs that are happening there is a program you know a construction program build your future construction training program there is an entrepreneurship program there is you know there was an agricultural program so there is the ANC has been doing all starting all these new programs to help people get a foot in the door in you know in a profession whether it be farming whether it be construction maybe technology starting a new business so there are lots of things happening, and the ANC is just growing and growing and growing to help fulfill these needs of all these newcomers coming here and, you know, working, like I said, day and night um, to give people the best possible start here in our province.
1: This might be a question better asked of a newcomer, but we know that English is one of the most difficult languages on the face of the earth. Look no further than your Twitter feed, the difficulty people have with your and your. So, how, are, how quickly are people picking up the language to the point where they can go out and navigate the job market and what have you? I know that's probably a better question for someone who's just arrived, but what are you seeing?
10: Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's one of these things that everybody, everybody's story is going to be a little bit different, right? And quite often it will depend on, you know, their, their literacy prior to coming to Canada. So for some people, they might not know how to read or write in their own language so that's going to take a bit more time to develop those skills. Um, for those that are, you know, perhaps were working professionals educated with, you know, degrees and things like that, they're probably going to pick up on it pretty quickly. So it really depends, I think, on the, on the background of people, their prior education, where they're coming from, their life experiences. And of course, we know that uh, the kids learn quicker. Right. So the children are going to be put in school and they're going to learn like lickety split. And, you know, I've seen because I used to work in the program that, you know, worked with the children in the school system that they get to a point that they're the ones ending up helping their parents. Um, after, after some time. So there are, there are programs in place. We are here to support them in every way we possibly can, and it's, it's such a pleasure to be able to do so.
1: I know firsthand how quickly the youth are picking up the language. A Syrian family lived in my neighborhood. The, the father was actually working down at Murray's on the farm, and there was a load of children, and they were sweet as could be, and they knew very little to know English upon arrival, and in mm-hmm. short order, they were talking a blue streak. So. Oh
10: yeah, and now just too like there's with there's, you know the, with the internet and TV and social media, you know we're it's, it's in our faces all the time. You, you it's hard to get away from it. So you know while we you know you try to say less screen time, less screen time, sometimes it does have its benefits. Sure, right because there's such educational programming out there on the internet and on TV for kids, and uh, anybody can benefit from that now from a you know an English language learning perspective.
1: Great to have you on the show this morning, Alice. I'll give you one more details Thank for much. dropping off the gift cards and/or presents, toys unwrapped, of course.
10: Awesome! Thank you so much, Patty. So, Stuff the Bus event Saturday, December third, from twelve o'clock until four p.m. in the parking lot of the ESL Training Center, one forty-eight Elizabeth Avenue. You can also drop by Calero Insurance on Higgins Line and the Conservation Corps on Austin Street to drop your twenty to forty dollar unwrapped gift by December 13th. And I would just like to send one more shout-out to the incredible uh, organizers of this event, Chelsea Hicks. Uh, she is a powerhouse, and this is kind of in her you know, her project in organizing this, so I want to make sure that she gets a special mention this morning. So we hope to see you all on Saturday. It's going to be really, really wonderful.
1: Thanks for the time this morning, Alice. Good luck. Thank
10: you so much, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. All right, bye-bye.
1: bye-bye. Alice Keogh is the Community Connections Coordinator at the Association for New... Canadians, a uh, quick check in, as usual, with the producer. David, how are we doing? we got a few calls out there. Let's get a few calls going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial on whatever you want to talk about, right? doesn't matter what if I brought it up or if you heard it on the show earlier today or ever before. Two seven three five two one one. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back.
0: Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather and more during your VOCM morning show.
1: Welcome back to the program. One of the pieces of legislation that's causing an awful stir in Ottawa and in different parts of the country is regarding the gun control actions uh, and measures that the federal government is proposing. You know, the handgun ban and the increase in the uh, penalties for smuggling handguns into the country is one thing. But now, and I really don't know uh, virtually anything about guns. I don't. I don't own one. But the thought and the rhetoric that's going around about the fact that this is going to ban all hunting rifles. When I read through it and try to understand what the different models and the different style of guns are, or long guns, or hunting rifles... It doesn't come across like all of a sudden there's not going to be any hunting uh, possible any longer in the country. You know, talking about the uses of bolt action versus some of the semi-automatic options that are really quite popular. So what I need, I suppose, is someone, and if you could bring a voice of understanding what these different weapons are and how they're used and what's being banned and what's not and what's actually going on with the bill, that would be helpful because I can read it all I want. But if I don't really understand the the weapons themselves, the firearms themselves, then it's hard for me to really put whole, a whole lot to it. I do know, and I think people are right when they say, you know, if the government puts that particular cart in front of the horse, if we're talking about the concept of less guns, less gun crime, then fair enough, because I think that would be all our desired outcome here, because who wants to have gun crime in their community? What we also know, based on Stats Canada, and the homicide rate in this country went up slightly last year, albeit it's still very rare in Canada, thankfully. But the real area of concern is almost 25% of the gun-related crimes and homicides in this country are inside the criminal element, which are the gangs. We also know, based on what the Association of Police Chiefs say, where they're getting their guns is in the United States. So if we don't ramp up and make this the first priority for gun safety in the country, if we don't start at the border, then we're probably making it priority number two, and mistakenly so. Secondly, how many license plates that would be from Quebec, Ontario, and other provinces that share a border, unlike Newfoundland and Labrador, with the United States, how many times would we see some of these license plates cross into the United States and go to a gun show? and whether or not they actually report their purchase upon uh, arriving back in Canada. So, you know, whether we focus on the gangsters and the smuggling of illegal firearms, handguns in particular, and or how many Canadians are probably part of it as well, by going down to a gun show and bringing back said firearm to the country, and maybe without the reporting required reporting at the border. So if you know more about this particular legislation, and do me a solid, and hopefully it's not just... Uh, a diatribe based on what party you support or not. Just to give us the ins and outs exactly about how that works and what the bill actually entails. Okay. Also, a follow-up by a variety of people on the call we had from a lady this morning whose mother was catfished and has virtually lost everything. Had to sell the family home and all the rest of it and I mean it was just a heartbreaking story. So, since that, there's been several people that are reporting that someone they know or someone they love has also been uh, subjected to the same thing. So while we were all well aware of the issues surrounding if you get contacted by the, uh, the Nigerian prince, right, that became notorious and consequently became useless for the scammer. But this one about in prison in Qatar, I've got four people since that call say they're familiar with that story. And in one case, the person actually fell for it to the extent that uh, Lisa, I think it was Lisa, her poor mother did, and had to sell the family five bedroom home. And, you know, wiring or transferring the entirety of the pension check over to this nuisance who pretends to be, uh, Lori was it? This nuisance who pretends to be in a prison in Qatar sitting on a $600,000 check, but all they need is your money. So, again, it is not to come across with your nana, popper mom, or dad that. You know, you're unable to, based on just simply your age, unable to manage your own affairs. It's not that conversation at all. You know, and my initial thought would be, if you just said, did you hear that story? That might be all anybody needs to know that. Yeah, you're right. They're around every single corner. They're in my Facebook direct messages. They're in my Twitter direct messages. Somehow they found my email address because those things are easily done. And so maybe just that simple conversation to ensure that you don't have to face what Lisa's facing or Lori's facing. And trying to deal with the aftermath. This poor woman is, has to be out of her house on December 7th. And the question is, then what? And there's no easy answer. And I guess I'm not surprised. But so quickly on the heels of that call, people calling or sending me messages, pardon me, to tell me that they know of that story. It's happened to them. Oh, boy. So you got to watch yourself, obviously. And another conversation that we had, maybe it was yesterday or the day before, and Christy, one of the great mental health advocates uh, here in the area, in the province, she called about the fact that come March, there's going to be an eligibility for medical uh, assistance in death that includes mental illness, and it might be your only ailment is your mental illness. Now, there is going to be some mental illness that is so severe, and regardless of treatment options, I don't know. Between you and your family and the two doctors you need to speak with, maybe that's a decision that could be made. But Christy made the ultimate point here: is In addition to the federal legislation, when we're talking about people who need a special type of support at home or a special type of home with certain kind of air filtration and or the home care required to help manage, in this case it was uh, uh, ALS, a woman out of Manitoba, and yes, with mental health concerns, the ultimate question needs to be, Do we have the supports in place that would keep someone from wanting to have that type of conversation with themselves, with their family, with their friends, with their doctors, before they even entertain it? It's the most important question associated with it. Some people agree that the eligibility, including mental illness, should be on that front. But boy, oh boy, the first question, the ultimate question, the most important one is, are the supports there before that becomes a path you're willing to walk down? On top of that, there was actually some work done federally, about what type of, get this, what type of potential cost savings might be in place. Really? You know, if we're looking to make that type of fiscal uh, decision based on the fact that as opposed to offering you the appropriate supports, we're just going to give you an option to die, how can that possibly ever be a legitimate approach to politics and to societal responsibilities? It just makes absolutely zero cents in the world. And I'm sure this particular emailer had possibly not heard what I said off the top of the program today. And this was about the respiratory uh, therapists who have left the province and more potentially in the offing to leave. They've got a massive big caseload, two therapists caring for 18 patients, which apparently is about double what they should be taking care of to make it safe for the patient itself. The concept went on to talk about the fact that the province of Nova Scotia has been here quite aggressively and they are dangling a big offer. A $10,000 signing bonus, relocation assistance and 20% more pay. Our respiratory therapists are the lowest paid in the country and that obviously is going to make it more and more difficult for someone to want to stay in this province or to come to this province. So Nova Scotia got out in front of us, and you know full well they convinced some of these uh, graduates about to uh, graduate from a respiratory therapist school at the College of North Atlantic, and they're probably gone. The biggest one that jumped off the page to me is not only is the province late to the game here, but they're going to offer a $10,000 bursary and full-time employment to successful applicants in exchange for a two-year service contract. Yet we've been told many times that it's inappropriate, it's unfair, and it doesn't work, Uh, service contracts, in particular with graduates of MUNS Med School. If it can work for respiratory therapists being trained at the College of North Atlantic, how can it not be a legitimate conversation to entertain about what goes on at Mon's Med School and an effort upon your acceptance and you arrive at the school regardless if you're living on Elizabeth Avenue or you came from Nigeria, the conversation about staying has to happen on day one and yes, we should be entertaining and understanding whether or not a service contract can be part of it. Why not? Anyway, it's good for the respiratory therapist, not for MDs. I don't understand the difference necessarily. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Executive Director of the AIDS Committee of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Gerard Yetman. Good morning, Gerard. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. So today is World AIDS Day. Right off the bat, how many people in this province are living with HIV-AIDS?
12: Well, at the the present time, um, and this is only based on uh, 2019 statistics, which are the last um, stats that we have uh, for the province, um, we had over 100 people living with HIV.
1: It's such a tricky conversation. If you harken back to when patient zero was identified, and I watched that documentary before. I was a, a steward on an Air of flight, and maybe unfairly labeled that. But, you know, we've come from where it was so-called a gay cancer to knowing so much more about it. We came from thinking that it could only be recognized as a death sentence, and now we know so much more about it. Talk about the... The risks that still remain today because it can be manageable and you know people will still say straight up that it's only a gay man disease when we know that's simply not true
12: oh no absolutely i mean you know we're 30 we're over we're over 30 years into the um the pandemic right now and when we when we look at um for example the the latest stats from UNAIDS. um we now understand that 70% of all new acquisitions globally occur among all populations so certainly uh, the you know the the stigma and discrimination we know is still there and it's directed towards the lgbt community for the most part and um, i think it's a you know the people are becoming more aware that this is a virus and it, can, and it affects all of us
1: what about some of the new treatments that are there? Oh, uh, uh, for, right. I guess before we get the treatments, you know, risk mitigation has always got to be top of mind when we talk about any sexually transmitted uh, infection and or HIV AIDS. You know, is it as fundamental as being honest and open and talking with your potential partner and or use of condoms? How do you want people to think about that?
12: Well, I, you know, I think what people need to think about is. You know, we got to get away from the stigma and discrimination, because when we associate a virus with a particular population, it kind of gives all the rest of us a sense of security. And one of the things that we're advising people, and that's a part of our campaigns, is everybody should get tested. Um, you know, we're we're not only talking about HIV. We're talking about all STBBI's now, um, and in particular hepatitis C, uh, which spur the numbers far out um, way HIV numbers in this province and across the country. So it's very important for people to get tested. Um, you know, we ask people assess assess your risk, um, and you know with. And and you know get uh, get educated and understand what are the risks for HIV, what are the risks for hepatitis C, uh, because they they vary um, and differently, and you know Hep C, for example, is uh, is much more easily transmittable than than HIV. So we've got to look at it as sexual health. And um, mm-hmm. I think you know when we look at at we've had major scientific breakthroughs. Um, in hiv and hep c right now we have a cure for hep c so it's so important for us to get tested and particularly any of us that uh... you know were born between nineteen forty five um and nineteen seventy four we could have been exposed to hep c through any kind of medical procedures that involve blood so uh... you know and you can you can live for decades and not show any signs and with with HIV, now we have we have um, medications uh, that were, are working really, really well. Um, to the point that um, the government of Canada has declared hepat- HIV a chronic disease. Um, we have preventative medications now, known as PrEP. Um, you know, and also a person who does test positive for HIV and is on and is on uh, treatment, um, they cannot pass on the virus uh, to anybody. So, you know, there's a lot of breakthroughs, and I think that there's a lack of awareness within our community, and unfortunately, one of the things that we, that we do see, uh, particularly among our, young, uh, our younger folk, is a lot of them think it's cured. Um, so there's a, there is a lack of education out there, and and that's something that we really have to work towards.
1: I'm not sure this has anything to do with anything, but the ability to live a long, fruitful, healthy life. I mean, I remember the day Magic Johnson came out and told us he had HIV. That was, I think, in 1991, and he's still here today. And I I do see and follow some of these treatments and some of these stories. Talk to me about undetectable. If you are undetectable, based on whatever course of treatment uh, pharmaceuticals you're taking. What does that mean for risk to others?
12: Well, basically, if you're undetectable you're you're on a, you're in a position where you do not pass on the virus because the virus the levels of the virus in the blood are too low to pass on so um, so that basically that's a full campaign that um and major major research um, that has proven. That a person who is HIV positive, um, is on treatment and adherent to treatment, that the HIV levels in the blood um, go to undetectable levels. When, they're on de- when it's undetectable in the blood, the person cannot pass on the virus to um, a sexual partner.
1: Uh, and, you know, for some people, this might be a conversation that makes them cringe somewhat, but, I mean, we're talking about, you know, health, and so... Health requires sometimes difficult conversations. What's the risk associated with oral?
12: Oral oral sex for HIV transmission is very 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 low. Um, and some scientific studies have shown that it's it's not transferable orally. Um, however, the, the majority of studies show that it's that it's very very low. It's less than one percent. Uh, in oral sex, so it's penetrative sex that that actually, and that the exchange of body fluids um, is really the uh, the main uh, transmission.
1: Fair enough. Uh, I think probably last question, unless something else pops into my mind is, you know, there's, there was long a conversation about age and risk. But, of course, what we've seen over the last number of years, believe it or not, listeners, is that one segment of society, one age demographic where we saw a spike in STIs, was actually amongst seniors. So, you know, some people think that once I grow to a certain age, then the, the risk has sort of diminished or has gone away. But there is no such thing, is there?
12: Oh, absolutely not. Um, I guess it was in 2018, um, we had a uh, 20% increase in HIV um, diagnosis in people over the age of 50 um, in Canada. At that time, the AIDS Committee of Newfoundland and Labrador went in partnership with Seniors NL and we developed a sexual health manual for people over 50. And we workshopped that, um, that manual across the province and delivered um, education to over 2,500 seniors clubs uh, or seniors in via seniors clubs um and uh, you know basically we've got to, we've got to realize that you know um we're sexual human beings and age is not a factor whatsoever and particularly when we look at the, the demographics in in our society and you know through the course of implementing that program over 3 years um you know, we we have a lot of people over the age of fifty who've lost their spouses to to disease. Um, we have a higher level of uh, divorce and separation um, among people over fifty. Um, so obviously, you know, at any age, um, we we are able to um, you know maintain healthy sexual lives.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely, and now this is absolutely the last one to add. So. If I get an annual physical exam from my doctor and the normal course of blood work, is HIV ever tested in that circumstance, or is this a specific request that I have to make or go somewhere particular for an HIV test?
12: No. Basically, uh, uh, on an annual, the only way that you would uh, be tested for STBBIs is if you ask or if your physician suggests it. Um, It's not something that is automatically done because you... We do not have the the you know it would be against our human rights uh, to be tested without our consent. So um, it's very important for people uh, to understand that that is something that you have to request. Now um, you know this year uh, one of the things that we um, did this morning is in partnership with the uh, Mon School of Pharmacy we uh, launched we launched the approach study, which will be HIV, hep C testing, and syphilis testing in pharmacies in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, so Dr. Debbie Kelly um, announced that uh, this morning. And in, in the new year, um, beginning in January, uh, the AIDS Committee of Newfoundland and Labrador will also be offering self-tests uh, Kits to anybody in the province that would like to participate what we what we have um, noticed within the the province, particularly since the uh, covid nineteen pandemic, is our testing uh, levels are really low um, very 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 low. And unfortunately, during COVID-19, right throughout Canada, HIV testing was halted uh, because resources had to be uh, moved to uh, address the priorities of the pandemic. So um, over the next year, um, we are offering different modalities of testing. Um, and basically, all of this testing is just a, its basically a finger prick uh, blood test. And um, so people can have their results within, um, well, for HIV within three to four minutes and for hepatitis C, uh, 20 minutes. So, um, you know, and I think what's most important uh, for people to realize out there right now is it's very important to get tested because if you are HIV positive or if you are hep C positive, We have very good medications uh, to address both. As I mentioned earlier, we have a cure for hep C. It's a simple 12 week uh, medication program that eradicates hep C from the body. And as we have already discussed, um, HIV medications now, uh, people are living and and dying of old, you know, other diseases other than HIV.
1: Gerard, really appreciate the time and the information this morning. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Gerard Yetman, Executive Director of the AIDS Committee of Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's take a break for the news right on time. When we come back, John's in the queue to talk about respiratory services. Don't go away. You're busy,
0: but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM.
1: And welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you? I'm top shelf today. How are you doing?
0: Good, good. I was listening to your comments, uh, the, co- the guy who called in about the situation in regards to the respiratory therapists and the ongoing recruitment efforts that Nova Scotia are making to get more respiratory therapists from across the country, mm-hmm. uh, and including Newfoundland and Labrador, and the situation in connection with the healthcare in general, uh, some of it being remuneration, not being... Uh, at the standard that it is in other parts of the country as it is in Newfoundland. Am I correct on that?
1: They're the lowest paid in the country here in this province, yeah.
0: Well, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians should be asking themselves, uh, are their politicians, their provincial MHAs, are they among the lowest paid in the country? I don't think so.
1: No, I'm I'm not 100% sure the point you're making there, though. Sorry? So we're willing to pay the politicians, but not healthcare professionals. I guess that's what you're saying.
0: Right, that's what I'm saying. And looking back at the NALCOR audit that recently came out, are other senior executives in government, compared comparatively to other provinces in, in the same position, are they among the lowest paid?
1: Unlikely. Uh, I don't know exactly yeah. what senior bureaucrats in other parts of the country make. It's easy enough to find out what mm-hmm. a MHA or MLA salaries would be, though. Yeah, I can do some comparative work on that front. But just well, in case. I, okay, go ahead, sorry. No, go ahead.
0: No, no, this has been an issue for years, I think, really, in in my history. And we saw what came out of the Nalcor ad, how many similar situations are playing out in government today in terms of benefits and remuneration for some people are way ahead of what they are everywhere else in the country. But everywhere else in the country, when you compare... Uh, union uh, members and bargaining union or in contract talks with the governor are going to be when you compare their remuneration against the rest of the country, it's sadly lacking.
1: Just while I'm listening, because I I am able to listen and to look, um, just so in case people missed the respiratory therapist issue regarding Nova Scotia's aggressive recruitment that took place already here in this province, and we haven't even started. Apparently, it's going to start early December, when in fact Nova Scotia's already been here and gone home, they were offering $10,000 signing bonus, relocation assistance, and 20% higher rate of pay and full-time employment upon arriving in Nova Scotia, and we haven't even started our efforts yet. Amazing.
0: Well, I mean, look at the out-migration numbers to Nova Scotia.
1: To Nova Over Scotia? The last five years. Hmm? To Nova Scotia? Yeah, from Newfoundland. Well, I don't know. Do you have some of those numbers available?
0: Well, they, the government were saying they were saying that over the last five years they were naming the places that they were going to, and there was a fair number of people going to Nova Scotia. Sure, my brother did.
1: Yeah, there was a. F- he
0: wanted to live and work in Halifax. Was. Better off from the living, working seniors.
1: Interestingly, uh, with the immigration numbers there, not just newcomers to the country, but people moving around the country, we saw a fair number of people move from Ontario to here. Now, we don't know if they were uh, young working professionals, or we don't know if they were seniors coming back t- to their home province, I don't know, but that was interesting. While you were talking, so, a salary, base salary for a Newfoundland and Labrador MHA, ninety-five thousand three hundred fifty-seven dollars. In Nova Scotia, base salary for an MLA, as they refer to them, uh, eighty-nine thousand two hundred thirty-four dollars.
0: Yeah, just just one example, six thousand more for Newfoundland. Yep. So anyway, I just thought I'd bring that uh, I'd bring that up. It's been an issue for for many many years, and I know they cut the number of MHA's over the last few years to to be more in line with the rest of the country. I remember an article reading in the Telegram some years ago, a columnist said that if Ontario were to have the same proportionally number of MHAs as they have MLAs, they would have to have like 800 MLAs in Ontario. We are that overpopulated with MHAs in Newfoundland.
1: Yeah, some of that is, of course, population density issues as well. Because if you do look at some provincial districts, some of them are really quite large, uh, as are oh, the yeah. seven uh, federal ridings. are really quite large, some of them. You know, Terence Rogers' riding is absolutely massive, uh, for one. yeah, uh, You know, they did cut the number of MHAs here from 48 to 40, and that resulted mm-hmm. in obvious savings. So whether or not mm-hmm. people think that's a good mm-hmm. idea, I'll leave that up to the individual. But, yeah, when we do some cost comparisons for whether it be Crown Corporations, the agencies and boards, the government yeah. itself, then that's a fair question, just like we asked Mayor Breen earlier, about looking in-house to be as frugal as possible versus mm-hmm. relying on increases in fees and taxes. So, same thing for well, the provincial and, and government. They
0: keep beating up on the same people for taxes. Who? They keep beating up on the same people. The little guys is being continuously beat up on for more taxes in Newfoundland. You know, the average Joe?
1: Well, I think, you know, the mythical middle class is the one bearing the brunt of it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I don't even know who they are. Now, the politicians will curry the middle class vote, especially in federal elections, it kind of feels like. But who that is these days, I think it's a moving target. Because what was once middle class 10 years ago absolutely is not now.
0: No, true enough. Well, anyway, I'll leave it at that, Paddy. I thought I'd bring up those points and uh, for you to consider them over along with the listening audience.
1: I appreciate you making time for the show. Thanks, John.
0: All right, man. Take Thank care.
1: You. All right. bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go line number one: Executive Director at the Eating Disorder Foundation. That's uh, Paul Toomey. Paul, you're on the air.
8: Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great
1: today. How are you doing?
8: Uh, not too bad at all. Patty, I just wanted to take a minute to uh, put a little plug in for the two year-end fundraisers we, we have on to go uh... we've got our santa's little helper online auction and you can just go to our website and that'll uh... give you the directions and take you directly to the online auction we've got uh... this is thursday so till midnight on sunday to bid on some eighty one items that are available on the auction and every dollar that we get from that auction goes to our programs and services because every single item has been donated for this auction. So it's a, it's a great little fundraiser and uh, we'd really appreciate people taking the time to have a look at the items and see what you might find there that might interest you for the Christmas season.
1: And the Eating Disorder Foundation needs a little bit of a leg up here given the fact that the bingo season wasn't what you hoped for. You didn't lose any money but didn't make the money you were hoping to. So... This is going to be an important initiative to wrap up the calendar year.
8: Yep, it sure is. And we've got one other. Uh, We've got a ticket sweep, an opportunity to win two economy-class tickets, valid for travel to any Air Canada scheduled destination in North America. And that includes Hawaii, Mexico, and the Caribbean. And... uh, who wouldn't mind a little trip there at the, at this point in time? Uh, the draw date is December the 17th. Oh, it also includes a one-night stay at the Comfort Inn. So if you're coming from out of town or even if you want to be close to the airport before your probably early morning flight out of here, uh, you can stay at the Comfort Inn, relax, and be ready to take your flight the next morning. Uh, you can purchase tickets uh, from us directly here in our office, uh, 722-0500, we also have an eight hundred number, uh which escapes me for the second. Eight five five seven two two zero five zero zero if anybody wants to buy tickets from outside. The tickets are forty nine dollars each, but the beauty of it is there are only a hundred and forty nine tickets and they're going fast. Uh we have over a hundred sold, so uh Less than forty-nine left to go. So um, between now and December seventeenth, the draw, by the way, Patty, will be made on the uh, Irish Newfoundland show with Greg Smith on December seventeenth.
1: Terrific, good spot to do it. A lot of people listen to that particular program. That's for sure.
8: Yeah, Greg. Greg's been been a great help and. Uh, uh, it'll be a, it'll be a fun opportunity to uh, to tell somebody over the year that morning that they're uh, they're going to perhaps Hawaii for a week or two.
1: Sounds terrific to me, Paul. Uh, good luck with it, and thanks for the time.
8: Thanks, Patty. Appreciate everything you've done for us during the year, and uh, look forward to chatting again soon. Uh, me too. Thanks, Paul. Take care. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye.
1: That's Paul Toomey. He's the Eating Disorder Foundation Executive Director. A couple of quick notes before we get to the break. Heard from Tracy Lawrence this morning. She's the president of the CBS Kins Club. She'd like me to announce that they are going to be participating in the Conception Bay South Parade Saturday, December the third, uh, collecting non-perishable food items and monetary donations for the Paradise CBS Food Bank. So, if you're going to the parade, please bring bring along something that you can make a donation, whether it be non-perishable or some cash. And wanted to put this one out there. Here we go. I've got it open. All right, coming up at the Growlers game on December the 4th at Mary Brown Center where they take on the Worcester Railers. 5 bucks from every specially priced VOCM Happy Tree ticket will be donated to VOCM Cares for the ongoing Happy Tree campaign. Anyone that purchased a ticket for this game can use a special promo to get a discounted ticket price of 20 bucks, taxes and fees included. So that's for the Growlers game Sunday, December the 4th. Down at Mary Brown's Center. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we we'll come back, Philip's in the queue to talk about seniors. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Philip. You're on the air.
3: Uh, yes, uh, Pat. Uh, Mr. Daly, I just wondered uh, what's going on with the Newfoundland Marvel uh, uh, Housing Corporation.
1: The what corporation, pardon me?
3: Newfoundland Marvel Housing.
1: Housing? Okay. What in particular? I'm oh, sorry?
3: No, I'm uh, major please like uh blindness, deafness, brain damage. Uh, they're just here recently, they up the age from fifty five to sixty. I just wondering why.
1: I really have no idea. Sorry Philip.
3: No, because like uh, in my view uh take uh, I put the application in last year take think at least let somebody know if they're gonna hop the haze back because I was trying for the seniors building here in Paris Power which is Mr. Newfoundland First, uh, when I put the application in, it was 55. Now they booted up to 60.
1: Yeah, I don't know why that would have happened. Sorry?
3: Yeah, that's what I'm with myself, right? I mean, I've been mean, talking to them, and I caused an uh, emergency uh, line for NLI. I think uh, I'd like to get back to St. John's and get how you do have major abilities, but like what they're telling me now. I got basically got fun my own accommodation back in the city. And so all. I told him, want to go back to work. I got a uh, disability daughter in St. John's. And that's another reason why to get back in there, right?
1: Yeah, I would imagine. So the rationale for the age change, I'm not 100% sure. So can you, can you just paint the picture for me one more time so I can formulate an email to send off to see if I can get an answer to your question? So a senior designation changed? From fifty-five to sixty, which of course changes the wait list.
3: Yeah. Okay. Change the, the wait list completely. Very but, but but like I said to everything there a couple days ago, I know you have got no combination for like say johns horn, rock, and grandpa's, but uh, in my view, like regards to combination, the system the system's bad right now. Because there's uh lots of shelters on the lake Deer, lake deer St. john uh, and I'm not sure I can or have Pauls but for corner but in my view, the way I look at it, they should start building more uh, more apartment buildings, more housing because of that right? They you know just well I do or anybody else their feet wide are looking for uh, uh better housing. And like I told Newfoundland, I said, I'm in Paris, it's mm-hmm. And then I'm trying to solve it, and I told him, this is only temporary. I don't know around someone else, right? Yep. But, like, they don't seem to get it. I, think. I need no listen.
1: Well, I don't know. I've got a bunch of questions, you know, uh, concerning housing. It's not only this new distinction, uh, the age distinction that I've got to try to figure out. But when we hear so many people who are waiting and so many people are looking for housing, and then I hear from whether it be Labrador out in Cornerbrook and other parts of the province where so many units that are owned by the housing corporation are boarded up, still waiting for renovations or repairs to uh, take place, we've got to know how quickly they're moving through that list as well because the more people, the more and the longer people are waiting while these buildings and units are boarded up, of course, just further exacerbates the problem. So I'm trying to figure that out as well.
3: Yeah, same with me, I've, I've seen I seen iris and sink John's before I left in twenty nineteen, they're all boarded out. Yes, iris had fire, but why didn't you renovate it and put it back new?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I'll see what yeah, I can I, find yeah. out.
3: Yeah, because uh, <clears throat> I went go back to work, yeah, some afterline math there. But this is not the point I left, left I worked there uh, from twenty thirteen. I covered the metal center in twenty thirteen up uh, in twenty nineteen at a restaurant downtown. So what's, what's the issue now? I know it's uh, like the gathering place and stuff, the shelters are uh, probably home or full, but what they're telling me, an emergency line for Newfoundland, Colorado, so i got to find my own accommodations. So what's the sense of an emergency line there if you got to look for your own accommodations? Right?
1: Yeah. No, I understand. Uh, I'll see what we can do. We've got some time, hopefully, coming with the minister responsible. That'll be John Abbott on that front. See if we can figure out some of these things. I'll put the questions to the minister on your behalf.
3: Hey, thank you.
1: Anytime. You're welcome, Philip. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, let's continue line number one. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you, Paddy? Doing fine. Thanks for asking. How about you?
9: I'm glad to hear that. Oh, I'm, I'm all right. I just got something on my mind that I can't live down. You know, it's something that happened to me last Monday night. But before I start discussing that, I want to talk about Mr. Steve Neary. When I was a young lad, he used to come into our house on Bell and My father was his campaign manager. Okay. And I, and I can remember, like, I was, like say, six, seven years old. And he used to put me on his knee and bounce me up and down, you know, and I felt like I was riding on a horse, you know, and it was just great. I had that memory, and I wanted to share it with you.
1: Well, Steve was a relation of mine. Um, yeah. And yeah. I have very fond memories of Steve Neri as well, and of course he's remembered over. I think it's in the parking lot of the Lions Club over in Wabana. And the yeah. old saying on the uh, island, of course, is Wabana, you're a corker.
9: Perfect. <laughs> All right, now let's let's get into this just a little bit. My question is, I was stopped uh, last Monday night by by a constabulary officer down here in Inception Bay. I live in Kellagruze. Okay. Okay. Uh, he he said that he was stopping me. It was a safety stop. Okay. Now, I'm pulling down uh, uh, on Station Road here in Kellegroos to go down by a little park by the water with my coffee, as I do almost every night, and listen to you and drink my coffee and look at Bella, and I love it. Anyway, he pulled in. He blocked me in there. As I was backing in, he blocked me in there, and the lights were going crazy, and this is a brand-new vehicle. Never seen before. White. Probably first day out. Anyway, uh, he got out and he came up to the side door, and he ripped it open. And I said, excuse me, shut that door. He said, no. I said, I'm telling you again to shut that door. He said, no. I said, why are you stopping me? You know, this is not allowed under the Constitution. He said, it's a safety stop. He said, you turned in a bit too quickly to get down here. And I said, so? He said, I felt like you were eluding me. So that's what this stop is all about. Well, I said, now, hold on now. This is the way this is going to go down. You give me what I want, and I'll give you what you want. So I got his badge number and, and the sergeant on duty back at the office, and uh, then I gave him what he wanted, and, of course, everything was in order. And then he was leaving, and he come back, and he said, oh, and by the way, you've got a light out. So when I came home, my neighbor was out, and I got him to check my lights. He said, everything is fine. Everything is fine. So I was traumatized. That's exactly what happened to me. I'm 70 years old. I was traumatized. And this is not the first time that something like this has happened. And if other people are being stopped all the time like this, I think they should phone into the show because it's not allowed. You know.
1: The police have wide reaching uh, ability to pull people people over. Most of what they call a safety check is to see if someone's impaired. And they That's now it. the change in the law, they don't have to prove that they had any reason to believe it beyond they think you might be.
9: Oh. Yeah. See see uh I'm retired six years and uh, I'm a bit out of touch now with law because I was involved and in, I was a paralegal. But uh, I felt that. I felt that date after changing that. But I looked in the Constitution and everything and read it. I couldn't see no changes, right?
1: Yeah, so. it's a number of years ago that that change was brought forward. Okay. And, you know, it doesn't. it's certainly no cold comfort because just having a, a suspicion based on nothing. For instance, you might have gone around the corner a little bit crooked. You might have been too close or too far away from the curb. You might yeah. have rolled through a stop sign, which I, I, actually that's not a good example because they can no. pull you over <laughs> for doing that. But, yeah, yeah, that's the basics of it.
9: Yeah. And, uh, anyway, uh, uh, there's something wrong down here. I don't know if they're sending all the rookies in down here to, to, to train them or what. This is not the first time I've been stopped. You know, and uh, the last time, I'll tell you this one. This is a good one. I'll tell you the last one. Uh, A guy cut across me, a pizza delivery guy, and he endangered my life. I had to get up on the sidewalk to get away from him. So anyway, I pulled in, got his license number, and I phoned it in 911. Yep. I got charged. For what? I got charged. He said he came out with his buddies and said that I hit him. I backed up and hit him. I never did no such thing. Now, I got charged with the same charge that the guy on Young Street who ran all those people down with his van. I got the same charge. So the next morning, I was there on the parking lot Sobeys, and I got the uh, camera, and I asked for a copy of the film. And when I came home and looked at it, it, there wasn't the right angle to prove that, you know. So I went to court several times. This happened during the pandemic. I went to court several times. And on the end of it, the judge said to me, said, look, if you're not guilty, don't plead guilty. I said, well, I'm not. I'm not guilty. Right. And he said, listen, do you think you can stay away from this young fella for six months? I said, yes, sir. Well, he said, do it. And there's no mark on your record. So, you know, I've had several different things like that happen to me. And I'm just wondering if if this is going on to other people. And if it is, you know, they should call in because uh, it's not right.
1: Well, there's some people who connect with me every now and then, and they absolutely think they're being targeted by the police for one reason or another. So, yeah.
9: Yeah. yeah. Well, the reason why I called him, because last night I was in, or last evening I was in the garage, and this guy in the garage, I mentioned it to him, he said, so what's, what's your problem? I said, what do you mean? He said, this common occurrence down here, they get all over by the police. And that's what, I said, no, I'm phoning it in the paddy tomorrow morning, and that's it. <laughs> right.
1: And whoever else wants to call on similar topics or anything of their choosing, they can do exactly that this morning or any day. Appreciate the time okay. this morning, Paul.
9: Yeah, thank you, and God bless you and your family, and I hope and, and your boys. I hope you have just a dynamite Christmas.
1: The very same to you and yours. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye bye. Alright, bye bye. Uh it is indeed time for the news. When we come back, we're going out to Leicester's farm. We're talking about the cost of farming acreage and the cost of food. I mentioned I saw a tweet from a fellow named Dr. Sylvain Charlebois about the increase in the cost of arable or uh, farm acreage here in this province. A whopping big increase, the largest increase in value in any province in the country. Let's go to the news when we come back. We're speaking with you.
0: Nutrition, exercise,
1: keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Just quickly before we get to line number two and talk about food. Interestingly, also in the food-related business, not so long ago, Derek Butler stepped down as the head man at the Association for Seafood Producers. This morning, Keith Sullivan stepped down as the president of the FFAW. He's only 42. He says he's in good health. He hasn't been enticed away to a new position. He just made a personal decision to leave. He's been at the helm of that organization since 2014, I believe. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Chris Lester. You're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. How are you doing?
13: I'm doing well. Doing well. Thanks for having me.
1: Happy to have you on. So I've made mention of this uh, number that I saw from Sylvain Charlebois the other day about the increased value per acre of farmland by province from seven, 2017 to 2021. In this province, a jump of 80%. The average throughout the other provinces is much more in line with, say, 28 or 9%. Unbelievable. What's behind that?
13: Well, I think a good portion of it is probably development uh, is driving the price there. Even though there might be an agricultural land freeze on some land here in the city, uh, prospective developers are kind of purchasing with the hopes that uh, the land freeze may be lifted at some point.
1: What's the real-life implications? Because the province talks about doubling food production and 64,000 acres for uh, agricultural purposes. But then you factor in this, so what do you think that means in real terms on the ground?
13: It depends where you're to in the province. So, obviously, closer to an urban area the farmland is, the uh, higher the value of it is. And it's not necessarily representative to the to the uh, agricultural potential of the land. It's more of the development potential. Okay. So, uh, farms that are in urban areas or close to urban areas, they are going to struggle. Uh, the idea of getting new farmland, I mean, you, you're just going to have to travel farther farther and farther away. Uh, Of course, land that's at your doorstep is probably going to be out of your reach. Uh, You cannot afford to pay $30,000 an acre for agricultural land with the purpose of growing food on it.
1: You know, for you, it's a family business. And you know, you look back over the decades about how many farms were in operation in this province, and it's dropped off dramatically. What do you say to folks who have heard the government talk about doubling food production, considering maybe a life in agriculture or in farming? Because for some, it might not just feel or look like an attractive job. It might look like a very arduous, difficult task to take on. What do you say to prospective farmers?
13: Well, you know, Patty, the, the lifestyle is excellent. I mean, everyone or a lot of people out there do some sort of farming. They, they have gardens in their backyard. They have flower gardens, whatever it may be. And it, it is quite rewarding from that perspective. Uh, Financially, it, you know, things are a little bit different. Uh, you you have to get a certain size in order for it to be uh, rewarding, uh, you know, financially. But uh, it, it is tough. It, it is hard to get into it. It's uh, I think our government's doing a great job uh, helping people get into it. I know people are going to have issues with it, but I think our government's doing a heck of a job uh, getting new people there. It's just, it's difficult. Uh, if you're in the supply managed commodities, if you can afford to buy into there yes it's probably a little bit easier but if you're looking at uh, grown vegetables or beef or something like that you're you're looking at a bit of a bit of a journey before you can get to a point where you can actually take the income out of it
1: what was the uh impact this season because we all know there was a spike in the price of fuel feed and fertilizer what did it feel like for your operation
13: it's definitely challenging uh you know you, you see Price food has gone up 7 to 12 percent, somewhere in that range there. Um, I would say that that's not actually proportioned to the increased cost of farmers. I think a lot of farmers are are putting off projects or trying to get that extra year out of equipment or something like that, just try to get through. Uh, I mean, we're here in Newfoundland. Everything, all of our inputs are shipped in here at an extraordinary cost. Uh, We get uh, tractor trailer load from Say Truro has gone from $6,000 to $9,000. You know, that's a, a 50% increase there. And everything from fertilizer to feed to park, it, it's after going right through roof. I, I think, unfortunately, we're at a time when everything's after going up, and we're, we're lucky that food is only at 7, 12%. And I know that it's unfortunate it's gone up at all, but uh, I think we're doing pretty good to keep it that low.
1: For local producers, I mean, it's a competitive world out there. You know, the family operations, the small, medium-sized farm, a lot of them have gone by the wayside because of the big mega farms. I know the big grocery store chains will have contractual arrangements with producers as far away as South America, throughout the United States, throughout other parts of this country. How difficult is it to compete on price? How difficult is it to find shelf space for your produce as opposed to simply selling it at the farm itself?
13: It, it is difficult. I mean, as you mentioned, these big grocery stores—they and yet you can't really blame them. They're competing against Costco and, and even larger chains again, so they have to. They, they got a system that works for them that makes their their business viable. However, it's definitely challenging for a new farm or, or anyone that's uh, just looking to break into into that market. Uh, we're pretty fortunate there. We're on Brookfield Road and we, we have our own market, so. We can kind of we're, we're unaffected by what grocery stores are doing really but uh, you know anyone that's trying to sell the grocery stores you got you you' got tough road I mean they got as you mentioned big contracts to supply say carrots for example you know and they want all these carrots they got to come from one one place and they got some in Nova Scotia grown you know 80% percent of their carrots so it's, it's difficult even though we can grow carrots here quite well it takes a lifetime to develop that relationship with the supermarket and to actually get in there to, to start doing it.
1: Well, uh, one uh, one thing everyone can agree on, the local produce is so much better, tastier, more nutritious. The dead giveaway is if I buy carrots out at your shop, come home and peel them and try to prepare them, my hands might get dirty, but they don't turn orange, versus if you buy them in the grocery store and they're so glossy orange, and next thing you know you peeled up a half dozen carrots and your hands are orange. <laughs>
13: <laughs> yeah, you know, Newfoundland carrots are funny. I mean, you can't grow a straight carrot here in Newfoundland. No. They certainly don't get those 10, 12 inch carrots you see in the grocery stores. But the, everything here, it grows a little bit slower. And yes, it is, you know, whether it's uh, here on the East Coast or West Coast or wherever it may be, the the, the produce is definitely more flavorful and, uh, and more nutritious, but uh, probably not as cosmetically pleasing.
1: Uh, last one before I let you go. So. We do know that, I think this is more a grocery store stat, you know, we only produce 10% of what we consume here. If the government had to make two or three moves, or whatever you like to say to this question, what can be done to do better on that front? I mean, is it to move towards local produce in the province of schools, long-term care facilities, and hospitals? Or what's a, br- a real step forward that can make a big difference?
13: Oh. That is a great question. Uh, you know, facilitating the growth of existing farms, that's probably the quickest, easiest way to increase our production. I mean, it, it is very, very important to get new new entrants into us. Uh, it takes quite a bit of time for them to go from one acre to 10 acres of crop. However, you've got some real nice big farms across the island here and to get them to go from say 120 acres to 150 acres, There's probably just one thing that's uh, preventing them to make that jump. Uh, I'd like for them to talk to some of the larger farms and see what they need to actually make that jump.
1: Chris, good to have you on the show. Uh, Good luck uh, with the operations out at Lester's Farm. Always a pleasure to be out there. Take care. Thank you. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. And, you know, farms of all sizes, like we've had Mark Wilson on the program, Organic Farmer, and so, you know, if you want to speak to that topic on the show, regardless of the size or the location of your farm, because we do know that there's got to be more and more move made towards more food security here on the island. And in Labrador, let's go to line number three. Pat, you're on the
14: air. Uh, hi, Patty. Hope you're doing well. Uh, Pat, I'm totally uh, shocked. I hear that no one has called in, but maybe they have. Uh, Donnie Tucker, uh, a state feature in front of Belma's on Water Street for decades now. Uh, Passed away there on the 25th, I believe it was. Uh, Anyway, wondering if anybody has announced, you know, even his brother Lewis, and Lewis is L O U I S, not L E W I S. If even if his brother Lewis has anybody uh, sent anything of a memorial service, tribute, and you're saying poor uh,
1: Donnie? Not that I know of. I, I mean I'm familiar with Don Tucker. And of course, as you say, he was a fi- a fixture on Water Street. And of course, unlike a lot of the buskers down there, he was the only one playing the button accordion. He was a very pleasant man and I know he had a soft spot for Extremely for dogs and what brother. have you, but Extremely yeah, he was a terrific fellow.
14: Pleasant fella. man. Yeah. Extremely he was- uh I'll give you one story on Donnie and I don't know if hundred I uh, don't know a hundred percent the details, so I apologize to anyone. Anybody's willing to correct me if they know more details.
1: Okay.
14: Donnie Donnie uh, well that's what his friends call him, so I'll call him Donnie. I wasn't really a friend, but I knew him to speak to him. Uh and he was so so grateful, so pleasant. He wasn't like I was bumming. If you gave him a few dollars, he was grateful. If you didn't, you know, we'd still say have a good day. So two people come down from the mainland, apparently. And I got this off of uh, the O'Brien crowd. They came down and they meet Donnie. And uh, asked Donnie out for a meal. And they brought him up somewhere and had a real fish and chips with Donnie. So they returned Donnie to where he's busking normally. And uh, they said, that, and one of the guys goes, so they got to go for a minute. And he goes, and he comes back with a brand new accordion. And he said, Donnie, try this out. See if you like it. You know, we went by, under the guise I guess, under the guise that they're buying one for themselves and they just like you know like these music like whatever and you know you can tell something it's a good accordion so he plays it how you like it donny hey it was done in their case how do you like it good good boy good instrument boy. good instruments and they said donny that's yours and gave him an accordion amazing hey, great story is, I mean, Donnie had, had, it's a shame, Shame, he's my man, the same as like we had the guy years ago, I can't remember now, he used to dress in three cars and sleep on the park benches. Okay. I'm, sh- I'm sure you remember who he is, uh, yourself. But, uh, yeah, Donnie had, had, and it's a shame, because all we think of mental health is unfortunately, addictions and all these people getting addicted to stuff and that. Uh, Donnie had traumatic events in his life and mental health as a result of all those things. And it's a shame that when we deal with mental health, we don't deal with with as we should that side of it, Patty. But anyway, I'm not going to go there. Uh, if anyone knows of a tribute or memorial to Donnie, I would love to hear about it. Please call in. And the other thing is, is if. Uh, if anyone is willing or anyone has the capacity, I'll try to assist them if I can. I have some business courses, accounting or otherwise. If someone is willing to to set up a kind of a fundraiser for a tribute to Donnie, to assist with Lewis, if Lewis is acceptable to this, to set up, you know, uh, to help Lewis in paying for the funeral cost for Donnie. That would be, I'm sure, by Lewis appreciated too, but I can't speak for Lewis myself. I'm not, sure. you know. But I think that would be a good idea too, because I don't think Lewis has any big amount of money himself either. So maybe that would be a nice gesture of someone too, if they could help in setting up some kind of. Uh, fundraiser to be attributed to, to him and to assist with the financial cost as well. Fair enough. If anything, and if, anyway, if anybody okay. knows of, of any tribute or much going on, I would great, greatly like to know myself. He was a great man. Thank you, Thank you Pat. Everybody.
1: Okay, bud. All the best. Bye-bye. Uh, last break of the morning, when we come back, Beth Jacobs, she's a social work representative at Munn's Student Union, Talk about the 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence. Don't go away. Now we're back. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to Beth Jacobs. She's a social work representative at Mansu. Uh, good morning, Beth. You're on the air.
11: Hey, thanks for letting us. Come um, and speak. I appreciate it. I hope you are well. Um, so Mansu decided to partner with Intersection Student Resource Center for Marginalized Genders and Sexualities. And we decided to do a bunch of events for six days of activism against gender based violence. And for this we kind of like just partnered with community partners both in uh, side MUN and outside MUN to set up events, activism, um, and educational awareness regarding gender based violence. So today we have violence prevention Novel on East tabling in the UC and tonight we're going to um Get students to participate in our preventing child sexual abuse course with Miles for Smells. and then tomorrow we have um, the Newfoundland Labrador Sexual Assault Crisis and Prevention Center tabling, as well as the Sexual Harassment Board. I mean, office that month is doing a event, which is going to be artsy and activism based. So um, it's a lot of great events, a lot of great people, a lot of great community um, awareness. Uh, and just like a heads up, today is World AIDS Day. Um, so just reach out to ACNL or to people who you love and care for who are impacted by AIDS and just give them a little cheer.
1: Yeah we actually had Gerard Yetman from the Newfoundland Labrador AIDS Committee on the show earlier today and you mentioned Miles for Smiles I assume that's Bev Moore Davis will be offering that presentation?
11: Yeah Bev Moore Davis is coming and I, I, I am incredibly encouraged by their existence. They have been doing amazing work in Newfoundland and I am so privileged to be able to bring that to some students here. There's some social work students going, sociology students. Um, We're trying to get education students because CSA is such an important topic, and um, I think it's not talked about well enough when we talk about gender-based violence. So um, we're just really focusing on helping people prepare to be able to prevent violence, but also to know and be aware of the signs of violence so that they can support community better.
1: How do you think we should uh, talk about it in more appropriate terms or whatever the the suggestion is you're making? What do you think we should be doing? How should we be talking about it?
11: I think it's really good to like support the resource centers which are in our community so like intersections in Monsega as well as several organizations Métis and and students at MUN or ACNL um, and you know, there's a lot of great organizations out there who do the work. And just, like, go to them, ask them how to um, engage in um, volunteering, activism, awareness, um, donate if you can. There's a lot of, like, resource centers and a lot of community-based organizations in our province which have too much work to do and too little time and not enough people. So even if you, like, donate, like, two hours of your time each week or each month, will do a great impact and just sharing their pages and sharing the awareness of events is such a great thing. Like for me as an organizer, when people come to an event, even if they're just present and not actively involved with different things, it makes a lot of difference. It encourages the organizers, it encourages the resource centers, and it helps us know that our work is being um, received well and also impacting the community.
1: We're not really sure what the prevalence of uh, gender-based violence is. We know that there's many people that are loath to come forward for a variety of personal reasons. We do see the stories like, for instance, at the Iris Kirby House, turning away some 267 people since April. So that's horrendous and it paints a very bleak picture. But inside the university community, we've heard and seen stories from other major universities across the country about these types of issues regarding gender violence. What do we see at Memorial University? Thankfully, we don't hear much about it, but certainly that doesn't mean it doesn't happen.
11: Hmm. I I would even question and say thankfully we don't hear about it because if we don't hear about it, that means that um, the community isn't doing the work that they're supposed to. A lot what? of gender-based violence is silenced by our um, society, and a lot of times we feel shame or fear or awkwardness in talking about it. And I think that if we were talking about it, we people would be able to... Um, survive experience as well and better with more support. Um, so, within the university-based community, there's a lot of gender-based violence which happens. You yeah. uh, know, the stuff that people typically talk about like intimate partner violence and sexual violence, but also like transphobia and lateral violence within the queer community. That's something that we need to talk about as well. Because gender-based violence is only like these um, high key topics which we talk about often. Gender-based violence can be subtle too. There's microaggressions that happen and harm people, and there's experiences where people get impacted by community, even if people don't intend to. So talking about gender-based violence, opening conversation, and having authentic and candid talks, which are honest and real, but also compassionate, is so important.
1: Yeah, I guess what I said was maybe a little bit clumsily put, but uh, yes, point taken. If we don't hear about it, it, means it's happening in the darkness, in the shadow, so that's a fair point, Beth. And I appreciate making time for the show. I'll give you a chance, before we run out of time, if you'd like to mention the details about the Where the Wins for a couple of the events that you have upcoming.
11: Amazing, thank you so much, and I appreciate you. Um Acknowledging that. I'm sorry if I seem too uh, upset with it.
9: No,
12: no so worries. Tonight
11: there is, of course, for preventing child sexual abuse that is happening at Mon UC. Um, you can message Mon or me for um, the posters on Facebook and stuff if you want to attend that. And also, tomorrow we're having a workshop, kind of RT thing with um, SHO in the UC as well as the Labrador Sexual Crisis and Prevention Center is tabling.
1: Appreciate the time, Beth. Thank you.
11: Thank you so much. Take good care.
1: You too. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. It's Beth Jacobs. She's the Social Work Representative at the Memorial University of Newfoundland Student Union. All right, good show today. Big thanks for everyone who supports the program. And, yes, we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.